Hey everybody, welcome to the Lex G Podcast, the films of 1987. I'm going to go through as many of the movies of 1987 as I can remember seeing, all the big ones, some of the small ones, things you haven't thought of in years and maybe never heard of, um, and just take you through uh, this year that... I don't know, I thought it would be a fun year to do because it's a year that I saw a lot of movies. It was maybe the first year where I had to see absolutely everything in a theater. Um, a lot of very well-remembered, well-regarded movies from this year. A lot of fun things like RoboCop and Predator and Wall Street that we'll get to along with things that like, you know, com are completely forgotten to the sands of time. Uh, as a point of reference, I looked at my list from 1986 and while I was still you know, Mr. HBO, Mr. VHS had to see everything that way. Uh, I think I had, I had better things to do in 86. I remember I had a buddy across the street who was kind of a cooler kid than me. And, um, maybe we'd throw the football around. And if we did watch movies, it was to see police Academy or rent Dawn of the dead or chainsaw massacre or something fun. But in general, like I wasn't as big of a dork the previous year. And then that dude at the very end of 86, he moved away. He and his family moved to a whole other city. And, I sort of descended into OCD madness, I guess, in a way of having to see every single movie, no matter how trivial. And I would rope my mom into taking me to a lot of these. I think before that, there were a lot of years that she just didn't wasn't, you know, once HBO came along and VHS and stuff, she was like, oh, you could just wait for it. And in 87, I had enough of that. I wanted to see everything in the theater if I could. So a lot of these I did see in a movie theater and it was not, you know, having your mom escort you to see movies was not the cool move. Um, this was the year that I was in seventh. No, this is the year I was in eighth going into ninth grade. And for many, that's a year of complete adolescent awkwardness. And I was absolutely no, no exception. So I kind of fell into movies even more, even more uh, obsessed than I already was. This was I had to be a completist about all this. And my mom, I remember she take me. She took me to see that movie, The Hidden, which, which is um uh, Michael Norrie and then uh, Kyle MacLachlan's the alien who comes down to earth. And there's this part with this very sexy stripper played by Claudia Christian, who uh, does the strip tease and stuff. I'm watching it with my mom, which was awkward enough. And then as we were exiting the theater, I realized all the cool kids or all the burnouts as they were called then uh, had been in the same theater. And this girl pointed to me like this Yinzer Pittsburgh girl with, you know, poodle hair and the acid wash jeans. And she's like, he goes to the movies with his mom. <laughs> and they're all laughing and pointing to me. I was like, Oh God, that's such an embarrassing move. Um, also, this is 87. Again, this is the height of like Reagan era America. And that's why you always have to kind of look at the movies in the context of what was going on in the world at large, politics, the culture at large. And a lot of these movies are very informed by that. This is the year of like the Wall Street crash. This was a year of like aspirational capitalism, Reagan, conservatism, um, this is the year, you know, the, the yuppie was a big thing in this in this timeline. Um, and this was the year I also remember this is the year of like uh, Colonel Oliver North and those hearings about the weapons for hostage arms for hostages trial, which is a 14 year old bored me to. I had no idea there was just this allegedly patriotic bozo on TV gone rogue. And this was on every day foiling my mom's soap opera. <laughs> so we were like, it was like the height of summer. Like, I want to see Victor Newman. I don't want to see this asshole. So that's just a little back story a little context on what was going on in 87 what was going on with me and the world at large but we have a lot of movies to get to so with no without any further ado let's get to 1987 and the films of 1987 january assassination charles bronson um even by the standards of canon bronson this is really bad it's also very light 
it was kind of different because it was light for a Bronson. I mean, he's still there's he's still killing people and got a bazooka and he's a Secret Service agent. He's got to protect Jill Ireland, who's the first lady, who's, of course, his wife in real life. And um, I remember being kind of not a this one was a little disappointing because I at this time really liked you know, as a young kid, like a young aspiring edgelord. So I really liked the dark sleazy Bronson of Death Wish 3 and Evil That Men Do was one of my favorites and 10 to Midnight. And this one was a little a little softer, but still ridiculous. Bronson's like completely sexually harassing his Asian lady partner. And uh, there's a part that's so embarrassing in this, though. Like they're on the lamb. I think someone's coming to get the first lady. And so they're on the road, Bronson and Ireland. And of course, they're falling in love along the way at, you know, at what he looks like. He's 89. and He's fallen in love. Um there's a really embarrassing part, though, where she's the first lady, and uh, this was the reason I gave this, like, one star, even though I liked all the bronze and stuff. There's a part where she has to go undercover incognito, and she puts on, like, maybe does her hair like a big Dolly Parton beehive, and she puts on, like, some jeans, and she has to pantomime that she's listening to ear uh, earphones, and she's rocking out. So it's Jill Ireland, like, walking down the street, like, snapping her finger and doing, like, a Gene Wilder and Silver Streak boogie down to some headphones as a pantomime. It's so embarrassing. And it's the idea that it's the first lady doing that. And at the time I was like, imagine Nancy Reagan doing this with headphones. And I was very adamant that this moment killed this movie that otherwise is pretty standard Bronson fair. Bedroom Window. This is directed by Curtis Hansen. Uh, I saw this on VHS when it hit video because I, I don't think this played in Pittsburgh or very short-lived. It, well, I don't think it was a big success, but this is a good movie. This is by Curtis Hansen, sort of in his journeyman thriller director phase. And um, those movies are really good. Like right before L.A. Confidential, he was like the hand that rocks the cradle and River Wild guy. You know, he's sort of even if you could argue he was building up to it. There was always this line of like, how did Curtis Hansen do that with LA Confidential? Like he hit it so out of the park and it seemed beyond what he had done before. And that's still kind of what people say, you know, he was a journeyman studio thriller kind of guy and then just nailed that one. But I think if you look back, there were some of these thrillers like Bedroom Window is a really good one. And uh, the other one I like a lot is um, Bad Influence with uh, James Spader and Rob Lowe, which is one of those movies I was just kind of talking about where they're like white collar assholes and Spader's the little slightly more earnest yuppie, but Rob Lowe seduces him into the dark side of nightlife. And it's very much the kind of thing that I thought adults did. Like it's guys going to the club and banging chicks and having threesomes and stuff. And it's, it has a really nice dark, uh, look and it's uh, that one's really good too. Bedroom Window, you get the bristling screen chemistry of Steve Gutenberg and Isabel Huppert, a <laughs> duo that uh, you can't uh, you can't get enough of together. He was, you know, it's fun to goof on Gutenberg now, but he was a big deal in this era. He's later we'll find out he's in the number one movie that year. He was big because of the police academies. He had Cocoon going. He was at Short Circuit going. You know, he was kind of a movie star at the time. Uh, this movie is kind of like a rear window thing where he spies on a neighbor during an affair or something like that. I haven't seen it in 35 years, but I remember it being very well done. I always remember thinking very highly of it. And kind of when he did, when people would say that about LA Confidential, like that that was so out of nowhere, I would always cite Bedroom Window and Bad Influence as being kind of the precursors. We saw glimmers of it and he definitely, you know, he was always a solid director, but I thought those two in particular were above the call. Wanted Dead or Alive. This is Rutger Hauer in an update of the TV show, Steve McQueen, except it's not in the old West and 
he's going after Gene Simmons from Kiss. <laughs> I, I, my mom was actually excited about this because she loved Rutger Hauer. She was uh, the movie Nighthawks with Stallone and then Rutger Hauer's Wolfgar, the international terrorist. That was one of our favorites in my household. I would watch that so many times. It's very, uh, you know, as a Stallone movie, it's a little different. It almost has kind of a 70s French Connection type feel. I'm telling you about Nighthawks and my thing about the year, movies of 87 because uh, One of Dead or Alive sucks so bad. But that's why she wanted to see because I think my mom has sort of smitten with him, this like devilishly handsome Dutch guy. But in this, he has like peroxided white hair almost. And I remember just flashes about, I don't think I even knew who Gene Simmons, I did know who Gene Simmons was because he was the esteemed actor from Runway with Tom Selleck. I don't think I was that up on Kiss other than knowing that they were these scary guys and makeup that I, my parents probably told me were devil worshipers or something. I wasn't like a big Gene Simmons fan yet or, or definitely not a 14, but um, it's really awful. I mean, it has nothing to do with the TV show other than the title and the fact that he's loosely a bounty hunter. And if I recall, it has that really cheesy 80s approximation of of like a certain style, but it's like the, the discount version of like MTV or of Michael Mann or whatever was flat or Adrian Lyon or whatever, like the flashy Russell Mulcahy look was at the time. This movie does like a very tacky, cheap budget version of that. And stepfather, this was Terry O'Quinn. They remade this with Dylan, uh, is it Dylan Walsh, Dylan Walsh or Dylan Baker. And it's the remake is the one where Penn Badgley from the gossip girl TV show, uh, looks like Billy Crystal in 1977. And the girl is Amber Heard. And, that one I remember kind of like in the remake, and I don't remember this original very well, which is blasphemous because people love this movie, and there was a whole series about it, and Terry O'Quinn's performance is very well remembered. It might be the thing I remember most about this. I think it's directed by Joseph Rubin. Uh, oddly, it's the kind of thing that should have been really up my alley, but I only saw it once, like on video way back then. And for me, strangely, it's not a... Uh, it's not really a huge personal favorite. I should actually watch it again. I just It's just been forever. Don't beat me up for that one. Outrageous Fortune. This was another movie night with Ma that I'm sure Dad was thrilled about. Hey, son, you want to watch the game tonight? The Penguins are on. No, no, no. I'm going to see a little Bette Midler. A little Bette Midler and, God, was it Lily Tomlin or was it Shelley Long? They all kind of, all these like touchstone comedies that came out in like 86, 85, 86, like Down Out Beverly Hills, Ruthless People, Hello Again, Big Business. They kind of cycled those three or four broads leading to like when it got a little more serious with like beaches and Stella and those kind of things. But, um, yeah, I, I had to see this. I don't know why I wanted to see it. I think mom thought my mom thought Bette Midler was funny and this would be wacky. And I remember like someone has sex with Peter Coyote on a chair and we're sitting there in a theater and my mom's like, Oh my Lord. And like covered my eyes real quick. Is this the one that has like a finale at like the, uh, um, the grand Canyon, or they're swinging around the Grand Canyon or on some mountain peak or something. It's really uh, bad. Ultimate 80s um, studio crappy touchstone movie. Radio Days was uh, one of two Woody Allen movies that year. I definitely saw it, but did not appreciate it at all. That's what I should... I, I guess admitting you're going to revisit Woody Allen isn't a big thing. Uh, like, strap in for the Woody Allen lightning round wouldn't be a big hit, but this is a well-regarded one. I remember I would get really mad when he did... One of those period ones, you know how like Woody kind of would alternate, 
you know, he'd do one of his ones about contemporary mores with a little morality tale. And then the next one was guaranteed to have some dingbat and like a flapper outfit and the big round uh, wire rim glasses. And he'd be like trying to fly on a bicycle and it would be like more the whimsical period. Woody Allen. This was definitely one of those moony nostalgia ones. And as a 13 year old kid had it just I didn't get it at all, but I'm sure it's great. Uh, Black Widow. This was Teresa Russell and Deborah Winger. It was a thriller. Russell is the Black Widow. She's like a bad, she's like a, a, this vixen who's, I think she's seducing men for their money. And then Deborah Winger, I think that's the plot. Deborah Winger is on her case as the agent. This has a lesbian kiss between them though. And I was like 13 or 14 and got the buzz for that so bad. I was like, wait, why am I enjoying watching that? I remember, that's all I remember about this movie. Other than that it was directed by Bob Rafelson. Um, which is kind of a weird choice for a slick thriller, but from the hip, Judd Nelson was a lawyer, Bob Clark, don't remember much about it. Light of Day, I saw this, this was a Paul Schrader movie, although it's not very Schrader-like. It's uh, Joan Jett and Michael J. Fox, I think they're brother and sister, I could be wrong about that. Anyway, they have like a local rock band, it's about their little their little internal squabbling, and obviously she sings and rocks out, I think he plays his guitar. It's not very Paul Schrader-like, if I remember, it wasn't a very successful movie. Mannequin, very 80s style comedy it's kind of terrible but it was amusing at the time i know it has that uh, nothing's gonna stop us now song that sends you out in a good mood and kim cattrall is a uh, she's a department store mannequin who comes to life and there were a lot of movies in the 80s that were kind of like this where the, there's some hot babe who comes to life where she's kind of supernaturally descends into the life of our you know kind of hapless but likable boyish leading man you know like she's a supernatural entity you know and this she's like a she's some kind of egyptian princess or something who is the department store mannequin when she comes alive um you know it's kind of like splash is maybe like the uh the ultimate example of this where Daryl Hannah is like the supernatural mermaid mermaid. And of course they always find and weird science to some degree with the kids, Anthony Michael Hall and that other kid. And they bring Kelly LeBrock to life. And it's sort of like this beautiful woman who's exotic and, but in a way kind of has no agency, but that's okay because they find their way into the lives of like the most non-threatening dude, like in, in splash it's Hanks. And of course he's so, uh, such a, you know, a, a Dudley do right kind of guy. You know, it's like the, the, <laughs> the department store mannequin, never comes to life and like ends up uh, falling in love with Joe Spinell and ends up in his dungeon or something. No, it's, you know, it's pretty harmless, but yeah, there is something weird probably about the gender politics of these movies. If you watch them today, but uh, it's certainly not worth, I believe our buddy, uh, old uh, GW Bailey, who I love from uh, the police Academy movies is in this. And uh, that the guy from, um, Oh God, was it Meshach Taylor? Was that his name? Yeah, who was on, I think he was on Designing Women. It was like an 80s sitcom with all these sassy ladies, and uh, he was on that. Um, what do we have after Mannequin? Let me go through. Over the Top. Oh, this is a Stallone classic. This is, by most uh, standards, this would be considered kind of bottom-tier uh, Stallone, but it's the kind of Stallone I absolutely love. It's the height of 80s meatball Stallone. It's right after Cobra. It was part of his two picture, two movies he did with Canon, but Warner Brothers actually put them out, so they still have somewhat of a big studio gloss, but there's a little bit of canon element to them. This is directed ostensibly by Menachem Golan, who's, you know, Golan and Globus, you know, one of the two 
main guys there, but it's definitely in Stallone vision. He plays Lincoln Hawk, the trucker with a heart of gold whose kid was taken from him, and he's played by that little brat who's also in uh, David Mendenhall. Or I think that's the kid's name. He's also in a terrible canon. Another 1987 gem to track down is Going Bananas, which is an 87 monkey movie with that kid. Uh, the Check out this hat cast. It's called Going Bananas, and you got Herbert Lom, JJ Jimmy Walker, uh, and Dom DeLuise, and a talking uh, talking monkey named Bonzo. And Bonzo talks with like a ridiculous voice, sort of like the son, like uh, Minya from uh, Godzilla's Revenge. And he goes, "Bonzo loves Ben," and then he sings this little song where the only lyric is "bananas," and it goes on forever. He just keeps going, "Bananas, bananas," <laughs> and it just it gets in your head as you can tell for thirty five years. It's one of the worst movies ever made. It's mugging off all charts. But going back to uh, over the top, Stallone's, uh, you know, he's the trucker, but he does arm wrestling to uh, supplement his income. And his kid is now, <laughs> his kid uh, is living with Robert Loja, Loja, who's uh, like the evil uh, grandfather or something. He wants to keep his kid, uh, Sly's kid from this no good trucker who does his sketchy arm wrestling. And yeah, he wears the hat. There's this part at the end where they have the big arm wrestling competition that's just magic. Uh, there's also a part where the kid learns to drive. It has two killer songs. It's got the Kenny Loggins Meet Me Halfway Across the Sky and the Sammy Hagar uh, Winner Takes It All, which are very, like, uh, great 80s anthems. It's so cheesy. And then his ultimate opponent at the end is this guy, Bull Hurley. It also has an appearance by Terry Funk from uh, WWF at the time, which was really exciting. He's also got some opponent. There's some real Stallone humor in his opponents. Like there's another guy, like a guy leading up to Bull Hurley, who he's always eating disgusting things to, or to show you how tough he is. Like he swallows his cigar, he chomps his stogie, and then he pours Quaker State motor oil down his throat. Then the payoff to this is later you see him drinking a bottle of Pepto-Bismol. It's like pure Stallone humor. And this guy, Bull Hurley, is this bald dude with like a goatee, kind of looks like, like Ox Baker from Escape from uh, New York. And claim to fame here is uh, when I was, in, maybe like 10 years after this movie, I had this mechanic in the valley named I won't say his name, but he was this Vietnamese guy, and he was like a great dude. He was like a great mechanic. And most establishments in Los Angeles, in the Valley, they always have like some cheesy celebrity headshots. And it's usually, oh, wow, you met them, or they, they come here. Like you go to a restaurant, your Japanese restaurant, and you know, oh, it's like, hey, Garrett Hedlund comes here or something. But in this case, the guy had one headshot, one. Like there was a bare wall, and dead center was one headshot, and it was Rick Zumwalt, the guy who plays Bull Hurley. And I was like, why would you just have a random Bull Hurley? Headshot. He was also in the Presidio with uh, 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 Sean Connery beats him up in the uh, in the Presidio where Sean Connery looks like he's 90 years old. But uh, he definitely is uh, effective going to toe to toe Stallone here. Helpfully explains that like he's like he's like, I'm like a truck. And when I turn my head around, he tells you about how when he turns his hat around, he's going into super Stallone mode and he's going to win, you know, over the top. Um, I think this is a great, terrible movie. Now I really want to go watch it. All these other great movies of 87 uh, over the top's the one that I'm really getting excited about. Uh, Death Before Dishonor was a kind of nothing war or POW movie with Fred Dreyer and he was an ex-football player who had the show called Hunter and Hunter was like a really whack network television version of Dirty Harry like Sudden Impact had just come out and it was really big and he had the catchphrase of go Dirty Harry always had the catchphrase he had like you know uh, do you feel lucky and uh, you know man's got to know his limitations and then uh, his big one from 83 was go ahead make my day 
and then for TV, I mean, there's always the great tradition of the TV cop show, but they, they very much made this guy Hunter uh, sort of a dirty, hairy look like. And he was a tall guy and he was athletic and everything. And he had, he would drive around, you know, he'd have like the bad, the sports coat with the bad patches on the sleeves like Clint. And he had like the, the sensible 1978 sedan and the, and the female partner kind of like uh, Harry had in The Enforcer. But he has like some really corny catchphrase like, oh, what was this? He had the cheesiest catchphrase was, Works for me. That's <laughs> Fred Dreyer. He's like, works for me. That was his dirty, hairy line. And he would say it one, and we'd all go nuts. You know, oh, it works for me. Anyway, he had this shitty movie called Death Before Dishonor, which the only thing I remember about it was at the beginning, the soldiers are in the barracks. They're all getting loaded together. And they're pouring beer in all their helmets, and they're chugging beer out of helmets. I remember I watched this with my mom for whatever reason. She's like, men are so stupid with their beer. Like, she thought it was just so gross and gluttonous. These dudes just down in all this beer. And I'm like... You know, good thing she hasn't been hanging around my apartment for the last 25 years. She doesn't want to see a display like that. Anyway, Elm Street 3. Oh, El- Nightmare on Elm Street 3 is a great one. That's one of the best Elm Streets. I would argue the best stretch of it is 3, 4, and 5 when Freddy really comes into his own as like wisecrack Freddy. And this one's directed by Chuck Russell. It has a slightly better than usual cast for those because you got some early, you know, some luminaries like Patricia Arquette's in it and Craig Wasson from Body Double, a.k.a. the... Uh, you know, the Bill Maher guy and Lawrence Fishburne's one of the orderlies and it's got the marionette part and the, uh, the girl with the switchblades with Jennifer Rubin, I want to say, um, and Heather Langen camps back. She's got the gray thing in her hair and the production value in this one is better. Uh, Freddie's wisecracks is like, it, it, it's a little bit of a course correction after two, which I like, and but two's a little bit glum. It's the one that everyone now casually refers to as the gay-themed Elm Street, which gives it a distinction. It makes it an interesting gender flip, and you know, to have a guy in that role as like the final girl or whatever you would call that um, makes that one interesting. But it's sort of a little more grim and kind of they're all very imaginative. But this one I think is particularly fun. And I remember I didn't see it in the theater, and I really wanted to. It had the newspaper ad with the the gloves, and I think the, you know the gloves were coming out at you. And I could just couldn't wait to see this. And I just, I don't know. I think my mom had no interest and I couldn't get somehow I couldn't get any ne'er do wells together to see this or they went without me or something. So I had to wait. And I was so mad because I was at like a fever pitch of liking Freddie by that point. Um, what do we got here? Some kind of wonderful. Actually, I didn't see that till many years later. I only saw some kind of wonderful a few years ago. It's very prototypical 80s John Hughes, John Hughes formula. This one directed by Howard Deutsch. You got, uh, it's Eric Stoltz and uh, Mary Stuart Masterson. It's pretty much the same movie as Pretty Pretty in Pink. It does have the distinction of having both Craig Sheffer and Elias Coteus, or however you say his name, and they're both in high school at what appears to be 37 years old. It's one of those movies where the preppy kids are always wearing the sport coat or the uh, the Tweety uh, jacket, and I, I that... I didn't. I never related to that at all. Never knew what that was about. Uh, Angel Hearts, boy, that was a huge favorite of mine then. That I've I haven't gone back to in many years. Mickey Rourke was just the coolest thing ever then. Um, he's got the beard shadow and the greasy hair, and he's that private eye, and, uh, just ambling around New Orleans with that like kind of one note piano score. The atmosphere of Alan Parker, those shots and the fans and the haze and his billowing outfit. He's kind of got that rumpled spearmint colored suit and the shot of him with the razor blade and the cigarette. It's, it was one of my favorite movies growing up. I loved Mickey work. Um, he was a huge, huge idol of mine, like kind of my favorite actor of that era. Like if in the seventies, there was De Niro and Pacino and Hoffman and those guys for the eighties, it was 
Mickey Rourke, my mom thought he was really something. I remember when like Body Heat was on HBO. The reason I saw Body Heat at like nine is my mom was like, you got to see this guy, how cool he is. And then on through like Rumble Fish and Pope of Greenwich Village, Year of the Dragon, Nine and a Half Weeks, Angel Heart. Um, he was just the coolest thing going at that time. And this movie I always thought was the one movie in particular that matched his, how um, intense he was in this movie. In the setting, the locale, and of course, it has Lisa Bonet, and it was kind of controversial for that sex scene, which I remember like she was on the Cosby show, or this is why she... I can't remember if she kept what she kept doing different world after this, but I remember like Cosby ironically was like fuming about her doing the sexy because she was like America's sweetheart on his sitcom. And here she is screwing sleazy Mickey Rourke. It's like, I do not like you doing the sex with the Mickey Rourke with the flizz and floss or whatever. And he just, he, he was, uh, Cosby was mad. I can imagine it was terrifying and menacing. Uh, I love Angel Heart. Lethal Weapon 1. I mean, what more? Needs to be said. It's a classic. It's Gibson. He was apparently the world's youngest sniper in Vietnam in 19, you know, 67 or whatever. When Mel was like 13, he was racking up points with his assassinations in uh, Saigon. But he's great. It's too old for this shit. It's Richard Donner. It's got the great Richard Donner sheen with the powder, powdery blue skies and opens up with that, you know, naked girl jumping out of the building, which is very much a Richard Donner. There's a lot of building jumps in Richard Donner movies from John Savage and Inside Moves to the you know the building stuff in Superman uh, seems to be kind of a trademark or something that, a motif you see a lot in his movies but uh, yeah it was so exciting you got Tom Atkins and um, uh, Gary Busey and Mitchell Ryan sort of a rogues gallery of bad guys and that awesome fight on the lawn at the end obviously this is like the the epitome of and the most enduring example of the 80s buddy cop movie and the cop action comedy genre where you know the two squabbling partners who earn each other's respect and you know you had running scared and tango and cash and red heat and renegades number one with a bullet and fatal beauty so like a million of these this is the one that really endured with you know they made four movies of this and it was i don't i'm not telling you anything you don't know here but that chemistry between gibson who's such a live wire and especially in this first one he's particularly not just ferocious, but he's genuinely dangerous in the first one because he's suicidal and you really believe it. Like Gibson's acting really sells it. And Glover is just like the perfect uh, foil for this. I love that he really wasn't that old. If you look it up, I think he was only like maybe 40, 41, if that, when they did the first Lethal Weapon. And, you know, he's playing this older character and, you know, I'm too old for this shit. And he's really not <laughs> like it's he's probably the age of Chris Pratt, which is something I think a lot of people don't realize, but it's such a great performance. They just play off each other. Great. I'm not telling you anything you don't know evil dead 2 obviously a classic i didn't see it in 87 it was a little beyond me i hadn't seen the first one i remember I, I we lived in maine when there was a trailer going around for that first evil dead and i was a kid and i think it was playing at drive-ins and this trailer would come on tv with like a clock going backwards and all that you know uh sort like satanic stuff and that looked like the scariest thing ever to a 10 year old kid I mean, the first one is pretty raw and scary, but it does have that, you know, elements of fun to it. And I didn't know any of that. I didn't see. I have a weird, like, shameful thing where I never saw the first Evil Dead till, God, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Like, I was really late getting to that, but I did see two because it looked so wacky and it was so well regarded. And I loved it, obviously. But uh, it's not really a movie or a series that I'm the foremost authority on. I know everybody loves it. I'm glad you do. It's just like, I don't, I, there's nothing I can tell you about evil dead. You don't already know, but it, it's a fun movie. It's just, I didn't see it in, in the spirit of this podcast. I didn't see it in 87 Tin men. This was uh 
Danny DeVito and Richard Dreyfus, both of whom were in like a million movies in this era. Richard uh, Richard Dreyfus was obviously like the big star, a big star of the seventies with Jaws, Close Encounters, American Graffiti, Goodbye Girl. He won the Oscar, and then had sort of a lean late seventies, early eighties. I don't know if he, I think it was that he had some personal problems and uh, the movies like the buddy system and the competition weren't really any great shakes. And then with down and out in Beverly Hills and like touchstone and paramount, they put him in so many of these wacky mid eighties comedies, Danny DeVito, kind of the same thing. He was everywhere in these movies after, you know, after taxi, after romancing the stone and here they butt heads. They're like two, uh, aluminum no no aluminum siding salesman and they have some like really petty squabble that escalates and at one point dreyfus like has sex with uh the other guy's wife and i remember seeing this with my mom and being uncomfortable and thinking it was really mean-spirited it's also as an aside like it's worth noting like what a big director barry levinson was he's got another movie later this year that becomes oscar bait and um now he was very much like an in-demand director at that time who's probably no one thinks of levinson as like the hippest director now, but he very much in the spirit of that late eighties reassurance, if you will, if you want to be Robin Wood about it, there were, it was, there were a lot of guys like Ron Howard and Gary Marshall and Rob Reiner and Penny Marshall and Levinson, who this was their heyday where they always had a movie and it was like the prestige movie and it got good. It would get the four stars from Roger Ebert and uh, the, your local paper. And it was nominated for awards and it was, really plugged into kind of the mood of the atmosphere at the time. This though was one kind of one of the edgier ones. It was part of Levinson's Baltimore series. And like I said, it had this sort of uh, misanthropic one upping tone. And I think the movie goes soft if I recall at some point, but uh, I remember it being pretty fierce and it was definitely a weird thing to watch with your mom raising Arizona. I didn't see it in the theater. I, I did see blood simple when I was like 13 and I, that obviously blew me away. And I was like, you know, that stuff at the end with MM Walsh and particular and the crazy camera work uh hopping around that bar and stuff and then when this came on hbo i had to see it i will say that there's a certain looseness to their first two movies you can kind of take blood simple and raising arizona as almost an entity unto themselves i mean they have that very loose feel that very rollicking feel and they always still kept some of that but it was it seemed like it was there was a more formal formalistic intelligence as the movies went on a very studied quality once you get to like you know Miller's Crossing or Hudsucker Proxy whereas the first two really just seemed like anything goes like their sheen was a little different that Barry Levins or uh, Barry Sonnenfeld camera was just zipping all over the place and through yards and the movies almost had this heartland uh rural at, like late at night and blue and highways and uh just like this beautiful americana and obviously they had their sort of social commentary about that that's always very cynical but i don't know the, there's sort of a, a good cheer about raising arizona that doesn't seem quite as you know even though they're obviously you know they're two yokels and it's great acting by nicholas cage and holly hunter um it seems like they got sometimes a little i, I don't always agree that they're mean about their characters but in this one it seemed ex particularly affectionate and a good time like i don't know that something I, I do remember when i was young though it bothered me that he has that dream at the end which is so beautiful and profound and everything but it bothered me that it was supernatural i was like you couldn't i was like you can't do that he's seeing it into the future this movie isn't super and like the whole movie's so ridiculously over the top and comedic and uh absurdist in some ways and i was mad that like he sees like an omen of the future at the end i was like at, at the first in the first viewing it it sent me out a little annoyed that it broke the supernatural barriers like one of my especially as a kid i had these rigid rules and i was just such an idiot 
uh, Street Smart. That's Christopher Reeve. Great performance. He's a journalist and doing a story on a pimp. It was kind of like Morgan Freeman's um, big reveal as like a really intense, great, serious actor because he had been, you know, a gigging character actor and little kids knew him. He was on the electric company as the easy reader. And he, in this, he plays this ferocious pimp and he's so good in it. Uh, it's directed by Jerry Schatzberg who made uh, scarecrow with uh, Al Pacino and Gene Hackman. It's a great seventies movie. And he did some other good stuff, but uh, this was very much, it's strangely, this is a Canon movie though. This is one of their reputable movies. And I believe, um, I believe Freeman got nominated for supporting actor for this, which for a Golan Globus movie was quite, uh, quite distinctive. I think I saw it on VHS. I certainly didn't see that in a the theater. I did see blind date. That was Blake Edwards. Uh, it's the first Bruce Willis leading man movie or first movie of his really starring vehicle. And I'm John Larroquette, Kim Basinger. It's like a screwball farce from that era where Blake Edwards was making a million movies about guys messing up and they're, you know, they're drunks and having affairs and stuff. And uh, John Larroquette gives a very over-the-top performance that's uh, quite enjoyable in it. Police Academy 4, of course, classic. It was the last Gutenberg. Uh, you also get some uh, luminaries like David Spade is in there, very young, Sharon Stone, Tony Hawk, and that uh, mind-blowing skateboarding scene through the mall parking lot. Uh, Three for the Road was like a nothing Charlie Sheen movie. Power X, oh, what is this? Project X. That was a monkey movie. Helen Hunt and Matthew Broderick studying monkeys. I didn't. I never saw this movie. I just know that it must. It must have broken some like '80s world record for being on pay TV more than any movie ever. It was always on, and it would be on every if you had HBO, Cinemax, Showtime, the Movie Channel, like all the whole full package. You could not avoid project x and yet i did i've never seen it extreme prejudice it's a good walter hill movie it's oddly not my favorite and it's not one i ever go back to it's uh nick nolte and powers booth and they're facing off against each other and it's sort of like a modern day western as so many of his movies are and uh i don't know why i'd, I sh I'd probably love it today it's obviously very peck and paw and as a finale that's just the wild bunch finale remade as i believe maria maria conchita alonzo is the girlfriend which she you had two choices when you had the diverse female uh lead in these you either had her or you had ray don chong you got one or the other if the white guy hero was going to have a mildly ethnic girl non-threatening girlfriend uh you got one of those two uh, maybe it's way better than i remember i know a lot of everyone thinks pretty highly of it i love walter hill i love all the movies around it for whatever reason i don't know something about this one maybe i didn't appreciate it i haven't seen it since i was like a teenager though american ninja 2 <laughs> i watched that last year it's the second one it's michael dudikoff um it's so badly made there's a part where he has a double and the double just does a full dramatic scene on camera with like his stand-in for like it just lingers on him and i'm like wait that's not michael dudikoff they didn't even give a shit the only funny thing well this movie's very funny but the funniest thing in it is that it's set on a military base where our u.s military they just wear casual clothes because they don't want to scare the bad guys <laughs> like, they're on like some pirate island or something with all these revolutionaries and as the u.s military is known to do they go around in hawaiian shirts and do gags and stunts and go surfing and uh kiteboarding and stuff so they don't look too intimidating to the enemy you know it's like the stupidest plot ever um it's it's a work of art creep show too i did a whole podcast on great dumb movie um Malone, Burt Reynolds versus Cliff Robertson, um, the quintessential Orion cinema, basically. Uh, Burt made so many, you know, movies I think were fun. There, there were, 
you know, he had Stick, Malone, Heat. If it had one word title, Burt was there. I mean, Renekop and Renekop, I think, might have been this year or the next year. Physical evidence. All a long way of saying these were the movies Burt was doing while he was doing Win, Lose, or Draw and Evening Shade on TV. I loved Burt Reynolds, so I would I would stick with him through anything. But he was sort of making these kind of second-tier programmers. Malone's a very entertaining one, though. Gardens of Stone. I only saw that on HBO once when I was 14. It was James Caan. It was beyond me. I remember thinking James Caan does some overacting in it, and it definitely has like the Coppola. It's a Francis Ford Coppola movie. Kind of has the glow and the wind, uh, the Venetian blinds a lot, and uh, the cast of characters you would expect. I don't. I just don't remember it very well. Um, yeah, Rivers Edge is a great teen movie. Uh, I at the time, you know, I was a teenager, but these were like delinquent kids. It's a great Keanu Reeves performance, and it's about like kids on the wrong side of the tracks. And then there's a kid, and Dennis Hopper's in it, and he does a monologue about how he is it that he doesn't have a leg or he has a he's an amputee because he had a motorcycle crash and instead of calling for help he had to see if there was one last sip of beer and his kid's a great monologue. Uh, there's a kid villain in it though who I hated so much when I saw this movie and there's this little Crispin Glover's in this too I believe and there's this thing where they sell weed and they call it feck weed for whatever reason that always bothered me but then there's a little kid who's like the younger brother who's picking up the delinquent uh, things that his old, the older kids are doing and as the most sheltered suburban Pittsburgh rube in the world, I didn't believe that was possible, which obviously it is. And it's uh, it's by Tim Hunter. It's a good movie. Ishtar. Now we get into film Twitter royalty here with the Elaine May movie, which I did. I did see this with my mom in the theater. I just remember them playing the piano and doing some witty banter with Beatty and Hoffman. And then it was... When they go to the desert, it becomes, I don't know, there were so many movies in the 80s where it was like a big thing to always go to the desert at a certain point. And for me as a kid, I, I think I like that that uh, milieu now, but that landscape or whatever you would call it just killed movies dead for me. I always got like, when they would get out to the desert, I don't know, it didn't, I, I wanted urban settings and stuff. Anyway, this is light comedy. I remember that the action stuff just didn't work. I know it's like, I don't want to say the wrong thing because I only remember it as how a 14-year-old kid would perceive it in 87. I know it is the towering work of genius that uh, Letterboxd and Millennials absolutely loved all because of the Elaine May factor. But I don't know. As a kid, I didn't get it. Beverly Hills Cop 2, obviously fun. Eddie, it's, you know, it's, but it's way more of an action movie. It's a Tony Scott movie. Very slick, very exciting. I loved it when I was 14. The thing about it when I watch it now is like, how off his game Murphy is in it, or at least the setups they give him like this thing where he riffs that he's Johnny wishbone is so not funny. And there's this running plot thing where he, he doesn't just, when he gets to LA in this one, he doesn't just stay in a hotel or stay with Bogomil or something. No, he goes, well, Bogomil's shot in this one. That's why he comes back to California, but he just finds a house that they're working on and he pretends to be the contractor and throws everybody out so he can live in a mansion. It's, I, I don't know. It's like it's it's a concept and it just doesn't work. And some of his comedy is like kind of corny in this one. It was around the, you know, uh, Raw came out this year. And this is between like Golden Child and Raw. This was like the era where he's getting the entourage and the taking himself a little seriously in some ways. And it being like a Tony Scott hard action movie. I don't know. There was a better balance of the comedy with the action in the first one with Martin Brest. Although the action is superior in this one. It's a very slick movie. Um when we got Ernest goes to camp, <laughs> I, I, I was, this might've been the, like the last 
the oldest you could be and still kind of be excited about Ernest. And it might be the only, I hate to say this, tell you this, it might be the only Ernest movie I ever actually saw. I know there's a great series and the idea of him is super funny to me when he would do those commercials and I was 13 or whatever. I thought it was super funny. And there was a tradition in the mid eighties of these weird pitch men that kind of became, there was that guy Jocko. Remember Jocko? He was this Australian idiot and he'd just come out and his thing was, he'd go, and one of these, and one of these. And that was it. That was the bit. He'd show you ever ready batteries and they'd go last longer than all the rest so they were and that guy never got a movie deal but there were these weird commercial guys Ernest was more of a rural heartland americana one and i was just at the eldest cusp of being okay with Ernest, and then i think i outgrew him um but i did see that i don't i, I it was funny for sure but untouchables i talked about that in the brian de palma podcast but it's great classic i thought it was the coolest thing ever when i was 14 um you know, De Niro and Connery and uh, just, yeah. I mean, like I said, I talked about that one at large, but uh, it's certainly, I, it probably would have been one of my two or three favorites of that year at the time. I, I think I told the story on the other podcast, but like Dan Aykroyd came on Johnny Carson and he's Mr. Canada. And he was a little annoyed with it. He was like, the, the Canadian Mounties don't really do what they do. And he had this like super, you know, spectrum breakdown of how the Canadian Mounties don't behave as they do in the untouchables. And I was like shaking my fist at Ackroyd. Like I'm not giving your dragnet eight, you know, three fifty or whatever the movie. T- I was so mad at him for talking some smack. The believers. This is a horror movie about uh, true evil with Martin Sheen and Jimmy Smith. And it's by John Schlesinger who made midnight cowboy. And it's really grim. I remember it being kind of effective and scary. And it's about, uh, you know, it's like a religious, you know, I, I don't want to say voodoo, but it might have been Santeria or something. And it's kind of grim and edgy and really like an unpleasant movie that uh, I remember being effective. Nobody remembers that movie, but I remember kind of liking it. Predator, obviously, 80s kid classic. I mean, it seemed so exciting and it was mind blowing how it kind of started out as like the hard, dirty dozen style rescue movie with all our, you know, action heroes, you know, and, and it had. You know, talk about one of those casts you wouldn't get today with any, you know, you'd get it except it would be Expendables 4 or whatever. But, you know, you got Arnold and Carl Weathers and Sonny Latham and um, Bill Duke and Jesse the Body Ventura. And, of course, the toughest of them all, Shane Black. Um, and, the you know, the kind of the fake out where it's like you think you're getting this rescue jungle movie. And then then you flip it and it's the Predator from outer space. And it's, uh, well, I, I think that you see the thing crash in the first scene, don't you? Like, you're not totally unaware it's going to be a sci-fi movie. But, uh, yeah, that was really something. I think I talked about it about, on the Arnold podcast. So uh, not going to go through it all over again. But, uh, yeah, obviously great. Super fun. I, I, like, I do think when people go, McTiernan had a perfect three-film run with Predator, Die Hard, Red October. I think the latter two are probably, le- I think Die Hard's leagues above the other two. Um, but this was just really fun movie. Uh, great score, by the way. I think it's Alan Silvestri. Witches of Eastwick. <laughs> I, I, this is like just what every 14 year old wants to see. Um, Jack Nicholson mugging like a jackass, which is like, I couldn't wait because The Shining was my, The Shining and Cuckoo's Nest were my two probably favorite movies as a kid. I just was, anytime Jack was wacky, it was like I had to see that. It was a super funny when he would do overacting and he was kind of broad. And in this, he's the devil and three witches played by is it Sarandon, Michelle Pfeiffer and Cher. And they each have a fling with him. And then Veronica Cartwright's in there as the as there's as the sort of dupe. And this is directed by George Miller, but it's very body and very sexual. And 
and very sexy and kind of sleazy. And of course, because it was a hard R movie, I, I talked my mom into taking me because I thought it would be like The Shining because I thought he was going to do the eyebrows and look menacing. And I thought it would be like a hard horror movie. And it was this like sexy witch comedy romp thing. And talk about the epitome of something. When you're a hormonal, pubescent 14-year-old kid, you really don't want to be watching. Well, I don't think I was that into any of these. To me, they were like three, you know, they were considerably, I wasn't sitting there boning out over Cher at 14 years old but uh it was definitely an awkward sit but i i remember i liked it a lot it's certainly that seems like a movie that nobody rewatches anymore even when everyone does the george miller the greatest genius of all time fury road stuff nobody's like slapping witches of eastwick in the old uh, blu-ray player um roxanne steve martin it was fun he's got the big nose you got rick rosovich shelly duvall that was a fred skepsy is that how you say that guys i've never known how to say that director's name um it was it was pretty good it was fun uh, that nose is fucking stupid, though. I think that nose kind of annoyed me. Speaking of Aykroyd, yeah, Dragnet, him and Tom Hanks. Aykroyd, obviously, doing his horrible Jack Webb imitation. I don't know. It's kind of a weird movie to think back on. Like, who was that into Dragnet still in 1987? But it was kind of a hit. Brought back Harry Morgan from the original, and then the buddy repartee with uh, Aykroyd and Hanks was kind of funny. It seems like a movie... I don't think... Any, does anyone still watch Dragnet? It doesn't seem like anybody's that it's uh Spaceballs kind of goes hand in hand with that more gags and stunts both of these were the old man uh deigned to you know he wasn't usually a big movie guy but when something was this wacky yeah Spaceballs was funny with the comb the desert and the pizza the hut I mean it's so juvenile I at 14 I would have sworn up and down this was the real this and history of the world part one were the real genius Mel Brooks that was so much funnier than Blazing Saddles and it was really just because especially with this one I recognized all the references whereas some of the cowboy stuff and the Frankenstein stuff might have been lost on me this was like it was because I knew Star Wars inside out it wasn't because it didn't really have this didn't have the edge and the bite the Blazing Saddles or even young Frankenstein did but you couldn't tell that to a teenage boy in 1987 Adventures in Babysitting I saw on Showtime maybe a year after it came out I I don't I know a lot of guys had the big crush on Elizabeth Shue um which you know I liked her as much as anybody but uh I don't remember it very well. Inner Space, that was wacky. It's Joe Dante. It, you see Outlaw Josie Wales? What a flick. <laughs> the part where he has to be the cowboy, played by, is that Robert Picardo when he's the cowboy? And it's um, Dennis Quaid, and it's Martin Short, and Martin Short is inside Dennis Quaid's, no, no, Dennis Quaid's an astronaut, and he goes inside the body of Martin Short while Martin Short does all these wacky gags and stuff, and it's very clever and uh, very Joe Dante, and it was something just cute and silly to see at that age. Full Metal Jacket, obvious classic, Kubrick. For some reason, I didn't see it in a theater that summer. I kind of have the sense that it wasn't, it didn't stick around that long, at least in my neck of the western Pennsylvania suburbs, because in so, to some degree, even though they're very different movies, and this is, you got to figure, this is the spate of movies about Vietnam, and when Platoon blew up, shortly thereafter, there was like a whole run of things. Full Metal Jacket is its own weird, very Stanley Kubrick thing that surely was in development well before that. But to some degree, how Platoon had been so emotional and like, as they called it at the time, a grunt's eye view and Oliver Stone and it's very overwrought and it really reflected his experiences and was, um, you know, had this realism, this verisimilitude to it in 
you know, and also contrasted with these very operatic things like the Adagio and Willem Dafoe, you know, dying with his arms up and stuff as this Christ-like figure. That movie was very overwrought and very sad and very gritty. And then Full Metal Jacket is just super Kubrick. You know, it's it's his own usual themes and it's his uh, his usual look. And it's not really filmed in a jungle. It's kind of filmed in, Lon- in London um, with this sort of urban combat that I think is... You know, everyone remembers the first half of this movie somewhat more fondly just because Arlie or Ermy is such a like force of nature and him coming out and swearing. I mean, every kid when we were like in high school when this came out and everyone started to rent it or see it on HBO, everyone like memorized all those horrible, hateful things that he was saying. And, you know, there's that old true foe argument about uh, to what degree a movie can be anti-war because you end up glamorizing it. And I've seen so many film scholars and Kubrick scholars and uh, people say, film geeks say, oh, no one could ever want to join the military. Who'd ever want to go to war after Full Metal Jacket? Well, apparently you guys uh, did not grow up in the late 80s in Western Pennsylvania because this movie in particular, kids loved this. I mean, they would memorize it verbatim and couldn't wait to enlist. I mean, I sort of came from a school where a lot of kids were going to join the military you know, now as an adult, I live in Los Angeles. This is as someone in L.A., this isn't very relatable because every kid here wants to be like an influencer in 2022 or whatever. But in Pennsylvania and coming from lower middle class, a high school, high school with a large lower middle class, you know, really super patriotic kids in the height of this movie was not anti-war to them. Like it pumped them up. And I knew so many kids were going to join or wanted to join and even did join in particular because of this movie, because of platoon, because of casualties of war, which is like the strangest thing ever. But I remember I, I worked at a, a McDonald's with these white trash dudes in like 89. And, and, and when the quarter grill, when the quarter pounders were coming up and when burgers were like someone, like when a lot of orders were coming in and they were really like throwing the McGriddles and the fucking Big Macs or whatever, on the grill these two guys would go get some get some like they were incorporating the verbiage of you know the the military movies into making the quarter pounder grill run faster at the white trash mcdonald's i mean it was this uh scene that i came from was very enamored of combat and war and patriotism and machismo and this movie was very uh formative for a lot of kids in my age range and it's just a great movie you know i obviously i love the shining in 2001 two movies i knew like the back of my hand by this point i remember this was around a year where i was like begging my mom to let me rent clockwork orange which would have brought it all together but when i got to full metal jacket you could see the shots that look like shots from those other kubrick movies you know he was one of the auteurs who really had this distinct kind of hermetic kind of centered uh sort of overlit visual style and then you get to that second half of this movie and i think there's a lot of the you know the surfing bird and stuff and it takes a while you know and you get the john terry part you know that you get a little social satire with them and the stars and stripes and he's like in the rear with the gear and it seems kind of leaden almost in an intentional way in that sort of kubrick way of presenting men as sort of uh almost robots in a way or or devoid of emotion and then once the combat stuff and that music that's just insane it's like and that last act with uh you know joker I really love Matthew Modine's performance of this movie. I really think it's something. I mean, Arlie Ermey and Vincent D'Onofrio are kind of, you know, they got all the 
the raves for this at the time. And you can argue that like Adam Baldwin is truly a force in nature in this movie, but uh, uh, Matthew Modine becoming that cold at the end of this is, you know, it's, it's one of those classic Kubrick things like Barry Lyndon or Jack or, you know, uh, Alex and Clockwork Orange just becoming progressively more dehumanized as the movie goes. And something about Modine, I know this was, I don't know, Matthew Modine, sometimes you take for granted because he seems like an amiable actor and sometimes can be intentionally bland in a way that I think is really interesting to watch. And it makes him so perfect for this movie because he's an everyman. He's not, you know, it's not like, you know, this, apparently this was going to go out to Anthony Michael Hall at some point who would have been more, charming or rootable at some point and could also be more of a live wire something about the you know the sort of like every man this is the face of matthew modine and you know he's got the two dueling uh you know the peace symbol and the born to kill this dichotomy of it and having just such a straight down the line you know i hate i'm not saying bland is an insult in this case but just sort of uh I don't know, just the, like almost I, I got yelled at on Twitter once because I said something about how white Matthew Modine is. And I didn't realize this. What, I think he's married to an African-American woman. And he replied saying, how how do you quantify someone's whiteness? And I was like, gulp, because he's one of my favorite actors. Um, but he's so perfect for this movie. I, I, I kind of lost the thread of whatever point I was going for there. But uh, I think you get it. Uh, after the stellar epic uh, Full Metal Jacket, there's Revenge of the Nerds 2, which is just silly. I remember no one was that excited about it. That's a rare case where, like, going from the R to the PG-13 in the 80s, at least. You know, now everything's a PG-13. But that definitely meant you weren't getting boobs, which was... You know, even though Revenge of the Nerds is a, is a, actually quite a good movie, when we you were 13, 14, you didn't really care that much about it. You were just going for sort of lecherous purposes and knowing that the Revenge of the Nerds 2 was sort of whitewashed compared to the first one. Although I, I saw it many years later and it was kind of funny. The Squeeze. This is a completely forgotten Michael Keaton movie. The only thing of note about The Squeeze, I think it has cover art. I think he wins the lottery. He's got a winning lottery. He's some bullshitter who's running around New York and everyone's out to get him and I think he has like a a winning lottery ticket that'll get him out of whatever rut he's in it has a cover art a poster at the time where he's being crushed or squeezed if you will between the two trade centers which is not aged well and also i remember he was on letterman to promote this movie and you know he and dave were like old buddies they'd been on that mary tyler moore thing together they'd come up at the comedy store together and he was there to promote his big movie the squeeze and didn't even talk about it at some point letter they he did the thing where you get three segments of dave really loves you and he went into the third segment even and Dave's like you want to talk about the squeeze and Michael Keaton was like nah no I don't want to talk I don't want to promote that and Letterman got a big chuckle saying he's never had a guest who actively he would rather do a bit than promote his movie but uh, that's kind of what Keaton thought of the squeeze Uh, Jaws 4 absolutely horrible the shark follows the uh, the family to Bermuda and the kid you know Michael or um I forget which uh, Brody son it is, but Lance Guest is in it with a beard and a head of beefaroni on uh, for his hair. And uh, Mario Van Peebles does a horrible Jamaican guy accent. And uh, instead of Roy Scheider or even Dennis Quaid, you get the, you know, Lorraine Gary full. She's the leading lady of the movie and takes on the shark. And it's truly awful. I remember that, like, the comedian Richard Jenny, who was very funny, who passed away, had a whole bit about how bad Jaws 4 is. And I'll never top anything that he did on this, but uh, yeah, it's awful. RoboCop classic. Although 
I saw it with my dad. I remember he, uh, my dad would sometimes get press invites to like, uh, you know, the, the critic screenings or the early screenings in Pittsburgh because my dad sort of worked in the media. So sometimes he'd get press passes to go to an early uh screening of a movie and we went having seen the tv ads where it's all goofy and dead or alive you're coming with me or whatever that stuff is and i don't you know 14 as so many people have said i was sort of like taken aback by the movie the main thing i remember the really the main thing from when i was 14 is thinking it was so mean-spirited and the satire while very broad and a 14 year old would get it like the you know i'd buy that for a dollar and all the funny parts and what's his name um um oh god what yeah uh um, miguel ferrer pissing on himself and dick jones and dan o'herlihy and ronnie cox and that rogues gallery of this movie has the best villains ever because you got clarence boddicker uh kurtwood smith you got ray wise you got paul mccrane you got dan o, um miguel ferrer um I forget who I'm Paul McCrane. Did I say that one? You think you can outsmart a bullet? Everyone in this movie is completely awesome and insane. And it's all Verhoeven. And I don't think I entirely appreciate it. The main thing that overshadowed everything in the movie when I saw it was the ED 209 scene in the boardroom where ED 209 kills all the executives, which is so funny, but was seemed very shocking uh, to me as a teenager and the, the the toxic waste kill at the end which is so funny now but and it's so over the top but i th i remember thinking it contained there was this element of verhoven that i couldn't define when i was a teenager and flesh and blood had it there's this part of flesh and blood where they poison the water and everybody gets uh and everyone gets one of those ancient diseases like the black plague or something and starts coming apart and it's so gross it's very gross out and a lot of total recall is like this and like arnold throwing up the people as a shield and stuff it's so over the top and I, I i you know as a teenager you thought all that violence was cool per se but I, it wasn't until you were more mature that you kind of got what he was going for the satirical points about it and about the genre and stuff and it's really like i mean that's one of the movies this year of 87 that truly stands up it's a classic and um as a side note to that you know American dumb guys love the Verhoeven of, you know, Total Recall, Space, uh, Starship Troopers, RoboCop, of course, Basic Instinct. But it really is, if you haven't, it is worth checking out the Dutch movies like Turkish Delight with Rutger Hauer. It's a harrowing movie. It's very sad. It's extremely 70s and dated and gross, but it's really worth seeking out. There's one called Katie, uh, Katie Tipple, or I forget what the original Dutch title is, where the the girl uh, scours her hands and lie and there's a shadow silhouette of a boner and spetters is just horrific and awful it's the one about the teenagers who are do who do motocross and then they all meet a terribly tragic end it's a very depressing genius kind of movie and soldier of orange is probably the one that's most uh uh, more of a straightforward war story. Uh, it's got Jerome Crabbe and uh, Rutger Hauer. It's very good, too, but some of the more outlandish ones. Um, like, if you're ever bored, uh, it's a good way to see where some of that sensibility of Paul Verhoeven came from. Um, La Bamba. This was a huge hit. This is kind of one of those movies nobody watches anymore. Is the ultimate, like, music biopic. I mean, it's the same deal as, like, Buddy Holly Story or Walk Hard. And it was sort of the star-making uh, 
Lou Diamond Phillips thing. And it wasn't until many years later when I worked with a Filipino dude who was, he would always be so prideful of any actor who was Filipino, like Meg Tilly and Jennifer Tilly are like part Filipino, Rob Schneider's half Filipino. And he would always go, you know, you know, they exalt them. And when he got to Lou Diamond Phillips, I was like, how, how can Lou Diamond Phillips? Cause I think of, you know, the finger man and stand and deliver one of my favorite movies. And as Richie Valens and La Bamba, but he's actually, um, so I always assumed he was, you know, about as Latino as you can get. But uh, Lou Diamond Phillips is one of our great Filipino actors. And that dude I worked with would never let you forget it. Summer School is a fun movie with Mark Harmon. Mark Harmon was a cool guy. He was funny. He was kind of loose. He was, and this was a silly movie. I think Carl Reiner directed. I think the thing every film geek remembers is, is Dean, Cam, Dean Cameron and whoever that other guy is, who are like the aspiring horror nerds who love Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And Mark Harmon's got like a light charisma with whoever that leading, I can't remember who the leading lady was. Was it Courtney Thorne Smith? Someone like that. Um, I always felt bad for Harmon because I thought he could have been a bigger movie star. He just got so overshadowed by Kevin Costner blowing up at the same time. And they were very much the same guy. Uh, Superman four, <laughs> man, I'll go to, I'll go to the, uh, I have a very soft spot for Superman three, which when I was 10, we went off to a big birthday party to see Superman three. And I always think of it as one of the great examples of like, sometimes someone says when you were little and weren't discerning and you just saw any movie and liked it was the first movie you realized kind of sucked. And our entire birthday party of who, whoever, whatever kid that was for when we were 10 Superman three was sort of this collective experience where a bunch of fifth graders knew instantly. This was the like just a horrible movie and a huge drop off from uh, Superman two. i kind of love superman 3 now because of all the bad prior comedy and uh you know uh uh, robert vaughn and everything and uh, straightening the leading tower of pisa and evil superman with his beard shadow flicking the peanuts it's sort of a masterpiece of richard lester idiocy but the fourth one is just canon it's cheaper i mean they do bring back hackman and now he's got john crier in there too as his sidekick and it's one of those when it came out, I was like, how can it, it doesn't count because it's only 90 minutes. Superman movie supposed to be two and a half. It's only 90 minutes. It's not a real Superman movie. And uh, 90 minutes is entirely too long for uh, Superman 4. <laughs> like, it's just nuclear man, right? Nuclear man is so bad. They bring back Margot Kidder too. So it, w it was supposed to kind of count more than the third one, which had all those different characters like Annette O'Toole and uh, different villain. But uh, four is just awful. Living Daylight, you got the big James Bond movie. This was a return to theaters for me for Bond because uh, for View to a Kill, I missed it because my mom would only, she would only take me to one movie that month and I had to see Pale Rider with Clint Eastwood. So I sold out Bond for Clint that one time. Uh, it was Timothy Dalton's first one. Um, yeah, I mean, it's got the great John Barry score. Kind of the last, it was the last John Barry score for a Bond. I talked about it a lot on my Bond, you know, I had did a Bond podcast. Um, but yeah, it was... It, you know, it was fun. Everyone really, you know, Timothy Dalton has become, you know, there's always got to be the guy who's like, well, you know, who really got the essence of the character is Timothy Dalton because he went back to the novels and we have to hear that eight million times. I mean, it's great. I love it. I like any Bond movie is five stars to me. You've heard me do that rant before and you can listen to the Bond podcast, but uh, yeah, I can't remember if it was really that huge of a hit compared to the, how the Roger Moore movies had done, at least like for your eyes only an Octopussy. I think there was a little fall off with the, uh, View to a Kill, but Living Daylights, yeah, just had so much hype because of Dalton, but obviously he didn't last that long in the part, but I think most people liked it. Um, 
The Lost Boys. Man, every movie on this list is something that's kind of stood the test of time, or at least people go back and still watch it or still talk about it. Yeah, Lost Boys, Joel Schumacher got the slick sheen. He got, uh, I mean, Kiefer Sutherland was, so, and God, Jason Patrick in that movie. What I mean, what a cool looking dude. He was, uh, I always feel bad, like I always think Jason Patrick was such an underrated actor and was so good you know, early on, here, there's a movie called After Dark, My Sweet by uh, James Foley. Terrific movie. Um, James Jason Patrick just looked so cool, like in uh, Lost Boys, Rush, After Dark, My Sweet. And then, I, you know, not to get into like cosmetic things, but his hair started his that mane of hair that he had in Lost Boys was not long for this world, unfortunately. And it's it's always kind of tragic that uh, he also had Speed Two, which kind of killed his cool factor. And in conjunction with his hair going, he's kind of he's magical. I, I assume he did something about the hair because it's been at standstill since 19. 19- 98 but uh great actor lost boys is a lot of fun it's very colorful very 80s and cheesy and Kiefer sutherland is an incredible villain in it with the how you like those noodles michael or whatever but i think i talked about it on my schumacher podcast it's a fun movie i've always thought it was just kind of stupid like i don't think it's any great classic or anything but uh it's certainly a fun movie is you know it's a movie that's very emblematic of the times and it's got both Corey's and all the cool actors and it. it was just something really fun if you were a teenager then plus it had that the soundtrack was pretty memorable stakeout was a huge hit uh Again, I talked about how like this is the era of the Richard Dreyfus comeback, and here and and a buddy cop movie with him and Emilio Estevez and the bad guy I believe is Aiden Quinn. So he's coming back to town, and they do surveillance on this hot babe played by Mar- Madeline Stowe, and then uh, Richard Dreyfus is playing a character named Chris in this. And I was <laughs> when there's actors who play I don't know what it is about the name Chris and actors who don't look like a Chris at all because I think Chevy Chase plays a Chris in. Nothing but trouble. And I was, I remember thinking like, and he doesn't seem like a Chris and Richard Dreyfus really doesn't seem like a Chris. But anyway, it's sort of like one of those eighties movies. It's a little bit lecherous, like, because they're both like, you know, giving her the Tex Avery eyes and everything and sort of spying on her. So our good guys are basically peeping Tom's, but, um, Dreyfus begins to fall in love with her and it turns into the classic, um, you know, buddy cop movie action finale. And this was a touchstone movie. It was a big, big hit. They had a bad sequel with, where they brought, I think my, uh, I remember my mom was a bigger fan of the sequel just because it combined the greatness of Dennis Farina and Rosie O'Donnell playing grumpy old timers. And I remember my mom being tickled by the second one, even more than the first, but uh, stakeout was a big hit. And it's directed by John Badham, who is a director. I am sort of fond of who did a lot of, a little bit of everything. He did Saturday Night Fever, one of my favorite movies, but his filmography is sort of bounces all over the map. He was kind of a journeyman who could do everything and kind of had a long run there. His, his run was sort of in in tandem with a lot of guys like Hyams or Carpenter or Landis or Dante, who kind of had a great 76 to about 91 or something, 93 maybe, and then sort of trailed off to some degree. But uh, I was always kind of a big John Badham fan. I remember the action and stakeout being pretty pretty decent um oh back to the beach sorry i'm like straining to see what this was a a reunion of frankie and annette and i did not care about that at all the only reason i wanted to see this was because the peewee herman was going to be in it probably for one scene if i remember but everyone wanted to see the peewee magic and didn't care at all and i'm thinking about like this was you know the the beach movies with frankie and Annette. how old were they in 1987 like maybe 20 years 25 years tops or something that would be like you know if they brought back jennifer love hewitt and seth green in a movie now 
they sort of never went away and like people still seem to watch dumb movies like uh 10 things i hate about you or can't buy or um oh can't hardly wait and disturbing behavior someone was talking about that the other day for god knows what reason i don't know those movies don't seem a quarter century old but in 1987 whatever the fuck frankie and annette beach party movies were to a 14 year old was like they were bringing back uh you know the civil war ambrose burnside or something like it was from another galaxy to us as teenagers masters of the universe i didn't see that back then i watched it a few years ago and it's one of those 80s kids movies where i missed the boat on it i tried to watch it even in the frame of mind of putting myself back then i was at the whopping age of 14 i was far too uh civilized and dignified for he-man and skeletor and whatnot and then of course i watched it at like 48 but uh and and i had some fun with it but it just seemed like the moment had definitely passed i don't know i was i was a notch too old for he-man when i was 14 who's that girl who's that girl this was like a notoriously awful madonna movie about which i remember nothing except that it was the very next movie by one of my favorite directors james foley who did at close range which is kind of i wouldn't say it's my favorite movie of all time but it's sort of a personal favorite because it's i I know i'll talk about some other time but uh we don't have time today but it's a movie that means a, a very a lot to me because it reminds me of where i grew up and uh the emotion the music and everything and then that his next movie was who's that girl is sort of supernatural there's a movie called nadine with kim basinger it was like a kim basinger starring vehicle leading lady thing that critics loved i think jeff bridges was the leading man in it i remember absolutely nothing about this except critics making a big to do about it no way out was uh i don't think that gets its due these days it was kevin costner and he's sort of like a naval officer who's investigating this crime against the clock and there's this george de Zundas in it weighing about 900 pounds and there's this slowly they're using this technology to decrypt this uh distorted image that's gonna reveal the plot and costner sort of working against it it's very suspenseful and gene hackman is great and will Patton might be even better as kind of the bad guy will Patton is very menacing in this movie and there is a final twist to this that I remember thinking is really stupid. And if you haven't seen it, I won't say any more. But there's just something really dumb at the end that I never thought worked. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it, it, it was sort of ahead of its time because it seems like a dumb twist that they use more and more these days. But uh, Born in East L.A., I, this is one of those things I persist in thinking was the movie of a generation. And when dudes talk about, like, Empire Strikes Back, I, I will try to tell you that no one in the world cared about Star Wars in 87 because everyone cared about Born in East L.A. and Cheech Marin. And I find out nobody cared about this movie, but I had it memorized. Uh, as you might know, I have this obsession, even long before I moved to Los Angeles, I had this obsession. I love Cheech and Chong, and I loved Suicidal Tendencies and movies about uh, the band Suicidal Tendencies, not actual. But um, movies about East L.A. and uh, Stand and Deliver and, um, you know, movies about, like, Chicano culture and g- gang members. And It seemed to a bumpkin from Pittsburgh it seemed fascinating and the houses with the palm trees anyway Cheech gets deported to Mexico by accident and he's down there with Daniel Stern and has to figure out his way back and as this part where he tries to teach English to these other to like these vatos in Tijuana well, he has to tell him how to speak in American slang and he writes was sapping instead of what's happening on the wall and he goes what's happening hey what's happening and it goes on about 700 hours and I would go around doing the was happening part 
all of my life thinking this was like the most universally uh, beloved and remembered movie of all time. And nobody still thinks about the what's happening thing except for me. He goes, what? Remember this? He goes like, what's happening? Hey, what's happening? And he's like, you got to put your, and he shows them how to put their bandana down and everything. And uh, it's classic, man. It's classic comedy that nobody remembers. This was after Chong. Like he had, he and Chi, he and Chong took a few years apart. And then there was born in East LA. And then he did one with, there was Cheech and Roberts and it was called Rude Awakening. It was him and Eric Roberts as hippies uh, kind of waking up in the nine, early nineties. And it's very bad, but, uh, uh, Born in East L.A. was really fun. It was based on that novelty song um, that, you know, it's ba- the movie is basically the song. Jan Michael Vincent is in there as this, you know, board, uh, the La Migra guy who sends him back to Mexico and he's got to find his way back. And I think he falls in love down there. And Paul Rodriguez is his cousin or something who's staying at his house who doesn't understand English. Um, yeah, it's really some high comedy that uh, a white rube from Western Pennsylvania thought was the authentic Mexican guy experience. Probably explains a lot. Dirty Dancing came out somewhere in there. I, I don't remember thinking much of this movie. I know it's one of those classics. It's sort of a girl's classic. Um, and I always thought Swayze was really cool. And it's a watchable movie. And, you know, it's classic. And it's the songs everybody remembers. And the dance where she jumps at the end onto his... And he catches her. And you had the time of my life and all that stuff. I mean, I'm not going to argue against it. It just wasn't a big deal to me. The Big Easy was a movie that kind of doesn't get mentioned much anymore, but it was kind of a big deal. It was this sexy crime thriller, allegedly sexy crime thriller with uh, Dennis Quaid and Ellen Barkin, and all the movie critics had the hugest boner for her in this era, this, and Sea of Love, and uh, Diner to some degree, but especially in this, it had these, they would talk about these sex scenes, sort of with, going back to No Way Out, there's this part, the movie critics and sex scene, like this is the height of me being 14, I just wanted to see nudity and the swimsuit issue, and try to watch scrambled skinamax like at two in the morning so when they would talk about the, these have the hottest sex scenes i thought it was going to be something out of this world and then the one in no way out i was like i couldn't wait to see it and then it was just you know this chase thing in the back of a limo and the the um the big easy one i think it was maybe a little saucier but it definitely was not the it was definitely not the emmanuel and bangkok experience i was expecting this movie has a lot of atmosphere big easy you know it's obviously New Orleans, needless to say, they got to whip out like the buckwheat Zydeco music and the plot to it, I think is sort of secondary. It's some sort of corrupt cop thing and it's not stood the test of time. <laughs> and it, I just, I, I mean, it's good. It's very good. Dennis Quaid is very corny and it doing some New Orleans accent and Barkin is, you know, like I said, movie critics today are terrified to say anything lecherous, but back then it was like movie critics would just, they were basically jacking off in print. <laughs> like they would go so nuts being all horn dog about who, whatever the actress was, whether it was Renee Russo or uh, Ellen Barkin, it was always like some sort of age appropriate babe. Um, uh, doing these sex scenes and and they went nuts for her in this i don't remember the movie very well the fourth protocol this was some sort of espionage spy type movie with michael kane and pierce brosnan that i just had to see for whatever reason i remember absolutely nothing about it i do remember that uh, I had I made my dad drive me to the theater in the middle of I think it was like a big Steelers game and I was like I have to go to the movies dad and he was so mad about interrupting the game he's like what the hell do you have to see and you know it's one of those things like 
man, one of the, you know, especially thinking in this era, how obsessed, I mean, listen to how many movies I've rattled off that a 14 year old just had to see. Like if I had it to do all over again, I would stay home and watch the Steelers with my old man a million times over and throw the football around or something instead of having to see the big easy and the fourth protocol and Amazon women on the moon, which was, uh, it's very funny as many different directors doing skits, sort of a groove tube, Kentucky fried uh kentucky fried movie type uh spoof and there's a very ridiculous scene of lex man humor at the beginning with arsenio hall having a very bad day and his vcr the cassette pops out and hits him in the face and he eats a bad his sandwich is spoiled and then he spits up his it's so it's so much mugging he gets electrocuted and his afro gets really big and it's pure landis humor and it's the kind of thing i think is super funny fatal attraction obviously like the hot button movie of the year um you know, Michael Douglas, he cheats on Ann Archer with Glenn Close. And this was sort of, I mean, really the water cooler movie. And you think like, so we just had deep water. This was by Adrian Lyne. And we just, he just did deep water, which was sort of his comeback after many years. And it was, you know, showed up on Hulu and it's the kind of movie they say they don't make them like that anymore. But when they made these movies, there was, you know, there was that long stretch of Michael Douglas cinema where he was this white collar sort of, you know, he was the good guy, but he was kind of sleazy. He was always having affairs. He was always, you know, doing something kind of sexy or you know raunchy and messing up and then paying the price for sins like disclosure and basic instinct and um this is a very well directed movie by adrian lyon he had such a good style he was one of those guys like you know he came up with like hugh hudson and ridley scott and alan parker and tony scott and uh his images were just great this is i mean and the thing is now everyone when they talk about this stretch of movies they're like oh michael douglas was so sleazy he was so reptilian he was such a scoundrel and everything that's with the benefit of today's irony and hindsight and sort of more enlightened attitudes he was just considered a cool dude at that time like yeah these were hot button movies and they were controversial but like he was there was no doubt when you saw this in suburban america that you were on michael douglas's side no matter how many they do give glenn close a lot of shading in this and her performance is really i watched this again not that long ago her performance kind of blew me away and i mean douglas is good but she's just incredible and um you know they give her a lot of a lot of depth and you know you have a tremendous amount of empathy for her too but at the time you know when you see these twitter kids say like you know it's douglas being horny and sleazy and everything and everyone loves to talk about how he rolls into the club in his v-neck sweater in basic instinct um we didn't have a tremendous amount of irony about that at least i didn't as a kid i just thought he was like a god i just thought he was like the coolest dude ever messing up but you know he's got to win in the end this is a very suspenseful movie is it owed a lot though to play misty for me with clint eastwood you always got to acknowledge that um from 71 and that was clint's first movie he directed with the uh, jessica walter sort of in the glenn close role um and clint driving around <laughs> northern california in a little tiny mg with the biggest head ever like his head is so big it looks like you could land naval aircraft on it and when he's bounding through the coast zipping around in his little car uh you see this enormous head and then just a little car um hellraiser classic gross unpleasant uh Andy Robinson. Yeah, man. That, but it has a Clive Barker thing that's just so painful and torturous and uh, really mean-spirited and ugly. Um, and it's great, obviously. Pickup artist, that's a James Toback movie, so probably the better less better uh, the, the less said the better, but uh at the time, you know, it's funny now like James Toback is one of those irrevocably canceled guys 
But uh, it's if you went back and looked at how many critics just were absolutely, you know, enthralled with this leg, you know, the legend of James Toback, this those sleazy horn dog. You know, he was considered sort of this philosopher of male sleaze at the time, and now it's like you know his name is Mud. But this was, but by his standards, this movie compared to like Fingers or Black and White, which were very provocative. Uh, this movie's a little more genteel. It's Robert Downey kind of doing the Robert Downey thing that he did in, you know, Iron Man. I mean, it's you go back and watch these 80s Downey movies, and he's kind of already doing what he got famous for 25 years later. The Principal, this was one of those scary teenagers movies, and uh, Jim Belushi is a uh, the, the, the principal of the title. He teams up with Lou Gossett to get all the gangbangers who were making this school hell. You know, it's that old, the 187 formula or Blackboard Jungle, that kind of thing. Um, Rampage was a good William Friedkin movie starring uh, Michael Bean. It's kind of forgotten. I remember, <laughs> I remember true to form, uh, Zodiac motherfucker on Twitter tried to pay William, you know, sometimes when you really love someone, you try to impress him by digging up a deep cut. And he said Rampage Jones or something like that. And in true to form, William Friedkin gave the most William Friedkin response ever. And he shouted like, of all my movies, why would you bring up that one? <laughs> Bestseller was uh, Brian Dennehy and James Woods. And one is, I think Dennehy's an author and uh, Woods is a hitman and they team up for some reason. And it was like a good pot boiler that I don't, I don't remember very well. Real Men was the immortal pairing of john ritter and jim belushi and this is that era of movies where jim belushi was supposed to be cool and we just had him in the principal this is a real belushi fest this season uh someone asked me to riff at at length about this one but i just don't remember it very well i'll have to revisit real men like father like son this kind of started that body swap i don't know is this the first one you know they eventually had uh, 18 again and vice versa and those kind of things and this one was Dudley Moore and Kirk Cameron I just remember a part in the boardroom where Dudley Moore is trying to act like a teenager Dudley Moore movies are a thing that just <laughs> nobody revisits I'd love to do a whole I want to do a whole podcast on things nobody revisits and I would talk about like Dudley Moore and Cheech and Chong and um and we got the Princess Bride. I commandeered somebody's birthday party. We were like in eighth grade. We were 14. And someone wanted to see a movie. I think it was some girl. And I was like, we need to see the Princess Bride. And all the dudes were like, are you kidding me? Like All these like football players were like, you're going to make us go see that shit. And, uh, you know, it's a fairy tale. And it's very, I don't know. Pittsburgh kids were a little rough and tumble for this. And I remember sat there kind of, I, I they were not as appreciative of the Billy Crystal Catskills Borscht Belt humor as I thought. Uh, these unironic Western Pennsylvania football kids would be, and this did not go over well at all. And I, that movie is forever kind of tainted. I know like the, you know, the Mandy Patinkin stuff, it's sort of, you know, people quote it all the time and it's considered a Rob Reiner classic and Robin Wright's so pretty in it, but man, I, uh, that was a bad choice and I kind of ruined somebody's birthday by suggesting it. Someone's watch, someone to watch over me. It's kind of one of those forgotten Ridley Scott movies. Even back then he was so prolific. This was Tom Berenger, and he's he's got to guard a beautiful woman played by Mimi Rogers and his wife is Lorraine Bracco who's giving him the rolling pin for it. Very stylish. It's shot in this like super modern uh, apartment loft kind of thing. And it's very 80s lighting with the the, the flood f- floods of light and the sheen. And uh, it's got I got I forget who that big I forget who that big hulking dude is who plays the killer. But uh, it's not a very well remembered or regarded Ridley Scott movie. But I remember thinking it was kind of stylish and fun. Three o'clock high, Buddy Ravel. Casey Samosco is going to get beat up at the end of the day. And uh, 
Richard Tyson is really funny as Buddy Ravel in that. That's a good movie. It's a lot of fun. It's directed by Phil Giovanni. House of Games, uh, this is a beloved uh, David Mamet movie with uh, Joe Montana and the always overacting Lindsey Krause. Um, I remember he smokes Winston's in it. That's one of the very few things I remember about it. I was 14. Got kind of a Mickey Rourke doubleheader here with Barfly and Prayer for the Dying. Um, more unkempt 87 Rourke. And I talked about him earlier, and he's definitely the highlight of both these movies. Obviously, in Barfly, he's playing, it's like a Charles Bukowski kind of thing. And Faye Dunaway is his little partner in crime. And Frank Stallone, very good as the bartender. That's one of the upscale canon movies directed by Barbe Schroeder, by the way. Hope and Glory, John Borman, who, I man, I love the nuts, bonkers John Borman of like Zardoz, Exorcist 2, uh, Emerald Forest to some degree. Hope and Glory. You know, it's about a kid, one of those kids eyes, kids eye view of the war kind of things with the bombing raids. And it's very elaborate and it was extremely well regarded at the time. And I think it was a little too serious of a prestige kind of picture for me. I wanted I wanted like the good locust and James Earl Jones spitting up that big marble from Exorcist 2. That's what I wanted from John Borman, not uh, the serious World War II epic, even though the movie's beyond reproach. I was the most popular kid on Earth for having to rent Weeds, a movie with Nick Nolte directed by John Hancock about uh, prisoners. Is it John Hancock? It's the bang the drum slowly guy. And Nick Nolte is in prison or he he heads up a bunch of prisoners to do a theater group and they're going to do a play. They're going to put on a show in prison. And it was this really corny movie that Siskel and Ebert loved. And I was like, when it came on video, I was like, mom, Siskel and Ebert love that we're watching weeds. And no man's land was Charlie Sheen and DB Sweeney as car thieves. Less Than Zero, a movie I liked very much as a teenager. And I rewatched it last year and thought it held up really well. The stylistic uh, devices in it I thought worked and Robert Downey Jr.'s performance in this whatever else you think about the movie is sort of timeless as this bullshitter plumbing the depths of addiction and there's this running storyline where I think it's his dad's brother maybe his uncle or some friend of the family who runs a used car dealership and Downey can always turn on the charm to kind of con this guy into giving him money for his drug habit and there's this part on the stairs where it's like two bullshitters uh, not fooling each other for once where he's trying to, you know, get money out of this uncle. Downey's performance is so great in this. Uh, the movie at the time was heavily criticized for being very sanitized, especially the main Andrew McCarthy character and to some degree Jamie Gertz, although she's having a drug downfall similar to Downey's, but he's the one who's, you know, he's like in, you know, he owes uh, an insane amount of money to James Spader, who's a pimp, who's going to pimp him out to other men and stuff. And as a kid, you know, kind of a sheltered Catholic kid in again in Pittsburgh, I, I had no concept of this or kids with this amount of money or these kind of problems or this experimental sexuality or drug addiction. All I knew was like kids trying to uh, trying to get iron, a case of Iron City beer to drink in the woods. So this idea of like owing a pimp uh tens and tw uh, hundreds of thousand dollars in drug debt was insane to me. Um, there's a great Thomas Newman score to this. Um, you could probably argue, and Brady Snell's, I think, over time has warmed to the movie. And, and when I watched it last year, the thing that really stuck out to me is just what a time capsule it is. What a document of that era, while still looking very slick and stylish, not looking very dated. Has a great soundtrack. I mean, Rick Rubin, and he kind of had guys, people who were on his 
ha- um, you know, payroll or whatever. Like there's a Slayer song, there's a Danzig song, there's that great um, hazy shade of hazy shade of winter uh, opening montage. I, a, I don't know. I, I still persist in liking it a lot. I think Ebert was one of the very few critics who got this movie. I remember he gave it four stars, which was considered absurd because it got terrible reviews everywhere else. Um, Prince of Darkness, great John Carpenter movie. I'd holds up i watch it all the time i love you know it's the that old chestnut about an upside down canister of green glop in a in an abandoned catholic church that's holding away the antichrist or no the son of isn't it the son of satan or the anti-god and you in the lead characters use physics and you know it's a very dense movie and it's sort of elliptical in it it's sort of elusive like when i watch it i always just about have a handle on some of the concepts that are i don't even think to some degree i have a theory that even carpenter doesn't entirely get or know what he's quite saying like he's talked about how he was reading a lot about quantum physics at this time and he wanted to incorporate those elements into sort of your more standard you know possession type movie and it's very interesting and i always try to get a grasp on some of the concepts and they're just beyond me and i also love like they're all supposed to be college kids i mean they're grad students granted but it's like jameson parker with that hog stash looking about 49 uh resplendent in his maroon eyes uh polo shirt hitting on lisa blunt with her he's doing card tricks and he's like i'm a confirmed sexist and he gets her into bed uh day one and the, the rest of the cast every everyone in the movie other than like uh jameson parker lisa blount uh Victor Wong and Donald Pleasance. There's a, an expansive supporting cast of people who are 57 years old taking college classes. And each one, you're like, who the hell was that actor? Everyone kind of looks like they could have been Carpenter's drug dealer in 1987. Like there's that kind of vaguely synth player looking dude who's who turns into the uh, to the procession of Beatles. There's that great part where Alice and Alice Cooper stabs that Arvid looking dude or spaz for meatballs looking dude uh, through the gut with the pointy bicycle it was so scary to me as a kid. Uh, it's sort of, uh, and that one dude what's his name. Dirk blocker. I think he's on Brooklyn nine, nine now when he was in poltergeist. Apparently that dude was only 30. That's the oldest, hardest 32. Anyone has ever looked. Uh, it's great. I, I'll do a, a carpenter podcast some other time, but it was a big uh, coup for me to get into this. I, I bought my own ticket and I was only like 14. I was like, and they were like, yeah, just go in. Like nobody gave a shit. Like I wasn't exactly going in to see, you know, Porky's three or something, but I, I felt like I was really getting away with seeing something truly, truly adult by getting into Prince of Darkness, the Sicilian. I loved Michael Cimino. He's very overwrought, very Italian. Uh, the deer hunter was a big movie in my house. My mom particularly loved the deer hunter and she'd make sure I watched it. And, and that scale and scope. And then I really loved Year of the Dragon with Mickey Rourke, who I was telling you earlier is one of my favorite actors. So the Sicilian I was all fired up for and just it played some second tier theater in Pittsburgh and I never got to it. So it was one of those ones I'd wait, you know, time passed so slow, you know, when you're a teenager and I couldn't wait for it to hit VHS. And I, I sat there pumped up like this is, you know, a Mario Puzo story by the director of the Deer Hunter. This is the Deer Hunter Times, The Godfather. Only those movies didn't have Christopher Lambert doing some very bad acting as Salvador Giuliano or whatever his name is. Uh, John John Turturro's in this. It's the first time I think I saw Joss Ackland. Um, it is, I, th- I believe, Malton or Mike Clark in the Malton book described it as militantly lugubrious, which is a great description. Um, I'd love to see it again. I remember it was one of those things I tried very hard to convince myself it was an absolute masterpiece. And I think it's sort of unsung. I just, I really like, uh, really like Chimino's sort of unironic, earnest, over the top sensibility. Suspect was some 
uh, courtroom movie with uh, Liam Neeson was the homeless guy that Cher was defending, and uh, her her opposing counsel was her kind of ex, played by Dennis Quaid. Baby Boom was some Diane Keaton corporate. Isn't that Nancy Myers? I'm sure the the letterbox kids like it but i don't remember it very well fatal beauty it's whoopi goldberg and sam elliott buddy cops uh that, that that's a regular uh burns and allen abbott and costello kind of pairing there um i remember it was a little more violent than your usual whoopi goldberg comedy near dark and the hidden can almost be taken hand in hand as genre movies that are extremely beloved and that I liked a lot when I saw them in their day and I've just never revisited them I'm like no kind of authority on near dark even though particularly with near dark I uh you know I'm a big Catherine Bigelow fan like I even saw Blue Steel a bunch of times I've seen Point Break a million times I think Strange Days is kind of a unheralded masterwork and obviously you know her Zero Dark 30 and Hurt Locker she's short she, she's sort of uh fallen out of favor with like Bigelow bros who kind of like the action pulpy movies and didn't as much like these prestige movies, which got great reviews at the time. But I don't think, I don't know. I, I really liked Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty, but they've become sort of hot potato movies. And I feel like she's lost, unfor- you know, very unfairly, some of her cool cachet she used to have. But, uh, you know, I, I remember like Near Dark had uh, Adrian Pazdar in it, didn't it? And it had that nighttime, moody, late 80s vibe to it that... Uh, you know, I should go back and rewatch that. I'm sorry, I'm letting you down on that one. Cry Freedom. All I remember is that Denzel is Stephen Biko. They had to throw that word. It's, it's the Stephen Biko story. And all the critics had to go through that ruse of like, you know, the Denzel stuff is electric, but the Kevin Kline thing is the most boring movie ever made, or so they would say. And I remember thinking the Kevin Kline procedural stuff, or he's, I don't I forget, he's trying to get a sneak into a country to get him out or something. I remember thinking the whole thing was pretty good, although kind of like a stale prestige movie. But um, I believe this was Denzel. He was nominated for that, right? Or did he win? Um, one of those things. No, who's watching Cry Freedom today? Uh, Death Wish 4, <laughs> more Bronson. I love, as the, as the Death Wish movies went on, it became less less immediate to his inner circle who who he had to avenge like in the first one it's hope lang as his wife dies and his, he, she and the daughter are raped and assaulted and then uh, the daughter goes mentally ill and in the second one it's the daughter gets killed in the third one it's his korean war buddy and i think by four it's like the it's like his third cousin twice removed or something no it's like it's the daughter of k lens his very age inappropriate girlfriend who dies from drugs so he's going to get revenge on all the drug dealers and he has sort of a benefactor played by Canon Hack uh, du, uh, du jour, John P. Ryan, uh, who's going to have him do the fistful of dollars where he sets two L.A. gangs against each other. And at the end, I'm not going to sp- this isn't going to spoil Death Wish 4 because you're not going to watch it. But of course, John P. Ryan is behind it all. One thing about Death Wish 4, uh, Bronson is definitely getting older, longer in the tooth. And uh, at one point, he just has an explosive wine bottle. He just comes to a restaurant. Danny Trejo's there is one of the guys he's going to blow up. And of course, they say, hey, come on. Hey, stay at the table. Have some wine with us. And there's the old ticking time bomb suspense there that is very unexciting. And when the explosion goes off, there's a very bad, there's some uh, bad uh, ventriloquist dummy work there. And uh, there's a great moment at the end where he shoots John P. Ryan with a bazooka. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's pretty fun. There's also a video store, my dream video store for very obvious reasons. Every movie, the video store is like a front for their drug trafficking. And every VHS box in the place is a Canon Films, Canon Home Video release. It's like, it's heaven, you know? Uh, Made in Heaven was some Alan Rudolph movie with Timothy Hutton, I don't remember. Steel Dawn was some boring Swayze barbarian movie. Cross My Heart was a comedy where I believe it's Martin Short and I want to say Annette O'Toole have a very bad date that goes very awkwardly. And the only thing I remember about this movie is I watched it with my mom and either Paul Reiser is Martin Short's roommate or he's loaning Martin Short his apartment as guys in their late forties do for their big date night. And Paul Reiser has left behind a stack of Jack mags around his toilet. Like he's got hustler centerfolds and playmates and stuff taped all around the toilet bowl, I guess for stroking purposes. And <laughs> that gag is really lame. And watching it with my mom, I, I remember being, you know, going through puberty when I saw this and was very scared that she would know that I knew what that was referring to. Uh, Running Man, Arnold. Running Man, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I did a Schwarzenegger podcast. So that's a fun movie. Richard Dawson's great in it. Got kind of a, another rogues gallery of badasses in there. And it's very over the top and tongue in cheek compared to some of the, well, I guess a lot of Arnold movies are, but that one was particularly broad. Um, nuts. I was the only, this, we're getting into the prestige Oscar season now with Nuts. This was a Barbara Streisand movie where she's on the witness stand and she's killed. I, be, I forget if it's her husband or someone she's having an affair with. And he's played by Leslie Nielsen. And this was about the last movie where you would ever I mean he'd already done Police Story and Airplane but this was like the last last prestige movie where you could ever buy Leslie Nielsen playing a serious kind of monstrous character kind of a variation on that jerk that he played in uh, Creepshow and, and Barbara Streisand kills him and Richard Dreyfus is in there as a lawyer and I had to see it for Dreyfus and Leslie Nielsen and this is another one of those I can't even imagine how I worked this with my parents and ever convinced them <laughs> they're like, like you're, you're sure you're heterosexual you, you got to see a Barbara Streisand movie. Um, I just, I don't know. I had to see it and I would never, <laughs> I went to the dollar theater by myself, like the world's loneliest Pittsburgh, uh, confused young man having to see his, his movie with Babs. I don't know what I was going for with that. Uh, all right. Now we get into three comedies that kind of go together. Can be taken together? Um, that were huge, particularly, um, there's Throw Mama from the Train, which which was Billy Crystal and Danny DeVito, which was a little more anarchic of the three. Kind of had that Danny DeVito sensibility where they're going to kill Anne Ramsey, who's this battle axe mom who's <laughs> kind of gross and disgusting and ruining what's-his-name's life. It's kind of a variation on Strangers on a Train, the Hitchcock movie. And I remember being fun and silly, and I, I don't think that one has stood the test of time very well. But Planes, Trains, and Automobiles has, you know... Uh, stuck around as like a holiday classic. It's a very warm movie. It's funny. And John Candy's great in it. And you know, he's Del, what is it? Del Griffin or Del Shannon or no, whatever he is. He's the shower curtain ring salesman who talks too much annoys uh, Steve Martin. And they get stuck traveling together. And there's the great part where they're going, how do they know we're going the wrong way? Um, I thought this was so funny and it made me, you know, missed up when I was a teenager, this idea, I sort of always had this, soft spot for like a tubby overweight goofy guy and john candy while being very funny really knew how to do that without veering too far into into schmaltz and pathos and every john hughes movie of this era kind of has that last act twist where the wacky slob really has this you know shameful secret like in great outdoors it's the dan Aykroyd's not really going to work and doesn't have this money that he, you know he's a big blowhard but he's lost his job and he's kind of shameful about it and uncle buck and they always had home alone even 
even the Roberts Blossom thing. They always have this little twist at the end and the last 30 minutes kind of tugs at your heartstrings. And it was never done better than it was in planes, trains, and automobiles, especially those two. Those two guys are just kind of at their height in it. And really, it's, I mean, Steve Martin playing off of how annoying uh, John Candy can be in it is great. And I always love the whole, like, not everything is an anecdote uh, riff, that tirade that Steve Martin goes on, which I think of a lot and probably a lot of people think about when I'm talking <laughs> like this podcast is a great example of not everything is an anecdote. And the other one is three, three uh, men and a baby, which was the number one movie of 1987. Who would ever believe that now? Not Robocop, not predator, not, you know, these movies we talk about to this day, not wall street, not full metal jacket. No, Ted Danson, Steve Gutenberg, and, uh, Um, Tom Selleck is three bachelors on the make. They share an apartment. One of them's like a videographer and there's some part where the bad guys, they rip all the, the cassette out of his tapes. All the, all the tape is strung up around the apartment, but there are three, they're three bachelors, three cool dudes, ladies, men who live together and sort of have a conquest with all these babes. And at some point, a baby is left on their doorstep and they don't know. I think there's the, it's a, it's based on a French farce and they don't know who the, who the real father of it is. So they take in this baby that they're, you know, and it's like the three wacky guys, guys having to do cute baby antics. And in a lot of ways, it's pure treacle and warmth and reassurance and very much in the sensibility of the late 80s. You got Tom Selleck, Steve Gutenberg, Ted Danson, three very likable guys. In particular, two of those guys had, you know, they were huge TV stars who came into America's home every week in that era. And people, you know, this is the kind of movie that's, all, you know, it's very much, ha- it has to be seen in the context of that era. You know, there's there's sort of scoundrels, but they're really harmless, good, lovable guys who are going to settle down. This cute baby's going to melt their hearts. And there's some lame drug dealing subplot that with the bad guys coming for the baby that is neither here nor there. But, um, you know, it has this has a certain glow to it. It's by Touchstone. It's very light. And, you know, it came out around the holidays. It might have come out around. I think it came out around Thanksgiving. And it was just one of those perfect, like, all-audience movies that you could go see with your kids and families, and it was sort of something for everybody, because it had a little romance, a little action. It had three kind of masculine stars that guys liked. So, I don't know, it kind of touched all the bases, and it is kind of stuck in that era. It's not really a movie. I don't think there are Blu-ray special editions and rep house screenings of Three Men and a Baby, because it was never a cool movie, and I don't even think I liked it that much in that age even as a teenager but i just i think if you like those guys it was fun and it was just you know warm family movie that's about as like all access movies can be and that leads us into the last stretch kind of the prestige movies of december the oscar type movies um and you know there's some that i've still never seen it's weird when you tell the story of a year like 1987 i think i've touched on all the ones everyone remembers and then you look at wikipedia what was nominated for things that year and you got like sally kirkland and anna that nobody rewatches, and you know you're really highfalutin movies like au revoir les enfants and the dead kind of the last um i think it was the last john hughes kind of the last john houston movie it's called the dead and it was his last movie it's pretty final um Pele the Conqueror, Babette's Feast, and Baghdad Cafe. These are all the kind of movies that, like, Siskel and Eber would talk about. Prick up your ears about Joe Orton. Is that what it was about? I just remember those names. Prick up your ears and My, my Beautiful Laundrette. Is that what it's called? My Beautiful Laundromat or whatever the hell it was with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. These were, like, the prime 
adult people movies that I wasn't, you know, I was trying to watch things that were above my station in life, but there were some that I just didn't have access to in Pittsburgh, some that were vaguely European or world cinema or British, and I just didn't get it. And I just never got to those. So those were the real, you know, it's so funny as with any year you look back and you're like, what the hell was Sammy and Rosie get laid? Where was RoboCop at those Oscars? Um, but that, that's what was out there. There was Wales of August. I remember that there was, like every, it was all the senior citizens. So it's like it's the last movie of Lillian Gish, and all the critics are like, "Oh, it's Lillian Gish," and I'm like 14. I'm like, "The fuck is Lillian Gish?" I want to talk about RoboCop. Um, and I see I've really matured since. But that December, you got Ironweed with Nicholson, which I had to see, but I didn't appreciate because I liked wacky. I mean. I liked Serious Jack, too. I loved Five Easy Pieces, Carnal Knowledge, or whatever, but I had just come off of Witches of Eastwick, and Ironweed was a very different kind of Nicholson performance. It's very subdued. Uh, Meryl Streep's in it, and Danny Noonan is in it, I believe. Um, and I don't remember it very well. And I, I remember it was beyond me, as I've said about a few movies of that year. Um, Moonstruck, you got Cher and Nicolas Cage. That was really popular. Was Norman Jewison, the wacky Italian family, and with the eminently not Italian share and Olympia Dukakis, Danny Aiello and Cage doing, I lost my hand or whatever he says and snap out of it. That was the big thing. They always show that, that clip where she whacks Nicholas Cage and goes snap out of it. Doing that overacting um, overboard. Kurt Russell, September, one of those real serious Woody Allen movies that um, I didn't see in a theater at the time. Uh, but the real, you know, the prestige ones, let's just get this over with. There was Empire of the Sun, which I talked about on the Spielberg podcast that I just didn't see. I didn't see it. So I don't have a 1987 exclusive memory of that one. Uh, Broadcast News, which my mom took me to, which I liked a lot. I remember this. I know it's very well liked now. It's kind of like the younger set likes this a lot. Holly Hunter's great. William Hurt is kind of perfect as this anchorman guy. Albert Brooks, when he asks if you can name all the members of the cabinet and he does that gotcha on William Hurt or it was at the Supreme Court, something like that. Um, this kind of thing was maybe a little mature for a teenager, but I got it. My dad worked. I don't want to talk too much about this, but he, he worked in broadcasting and so... Well, the, well, nothing like this. It was sort of, I recognized, it was like fun to see backstage at a TV station, the news and how this was put together, how things were manipulated was interesting to me. And this kind of interesting love story. I think it's a really good movie. Um, I believe it has a really schmaltzy score that's very stuck in the era. And I know it's one that the Letterbox kids like revisiting. And I, I did like this at the time. Kind of hand-in-hand hand with uh, Broadcast News, another movie about, well, broadcasting, sort of, kind of, lighter, is... Uh, Robin Williams in Good Morning Vietnam, which was a huge hit. Everybody loved Robin Williams in this era, especially teenagers loved him. And it was sort of before, you know, he's an icon. He's passed away. He was a hero to so many of us, especially me. I loved comedy and I would watch him on uh, HBO specials and stuff. I remember that there was that one in the early 80s where he had the big hefty bag pants on and he was just manic and out of control. And when he, when he went into movies with like Garp and uh, Moscow and the Hudson, the survivors, the best of times, I was all about Robin Williams. Kind of later, it felt like... <laughs> Kind of Beavis and Butthead was the first thing I remember daring to say it. And then Anthony Cumia used to do a very funny bit about this, too. But how when you really step back and listen, a lot of times Robin Williams, remember Beavis said that line, like, this is that guy who says stuff really fast. So you notice it's don't notice it's not that funny, which is kind of a, a pretty hard dig at him. But sometimes it's kind of true. I think there's parts in, you know, when you would watch enough Robin Williams, he'd have some go to's like he'd be like, hey, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Oh, and he would just do some dance. And you're like, what? You know, it's. 
as those uh, Anthony Kumi would say, like he's not even saying anything funny. He's just saying these random words, but it kind of sounds funny. And Good Morning Vietnam, he's playing Adrian Cronauer, this real life DJ, anarchic DJ who went to Vietnam, obviously to go on the radio and they sort of like got the troops through the harrowing experience of Vietnam by being all wacky and funny. And it's a good movie. It's directed by Barry Levinson. It's very sweet. Forrest Whitaker is very warm and engaging as, as Robin Williams' sidekick and particularly funny. Probably my favorite thing about this movie is Bruno Kirby as the sort of old school asshole who doesn't think Williams is funny at all, which is kind of funny in and of itself and insists on doing his own comedy on the radio and it's absolutely horrible hacky shit and that is right in my wheelhouse of things. I love. And he has that part where he goes, sir, I know in my heart I'm funny. <laughs> so That's so up my alley. Uh, but this is definitely the epitome of the Robin Williams thing where he says, things a hundred miles an hour as soon as he gets off the you know helicopter or whatever he takes to the airwaves and he's like uh, hey from the delta to the dmz to the denang me denang me and he's like doing all these crazy bits and it is that thing where you're like what is he what is he going for with this it sounds funny and sometimes it's a little much he's a little you know it's obviously he's at patch adams you know 11 in this but um yeah, and it's got, you know, it's another Levinson. It's got this schmaltzy montage to What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. It's one of those things like when you're a teenager, you get all moony about something like that because you haven't heard that song 8 billion times when you're 14 or 15. And now I would watch it and kind of roll my eyes at it. Um, it's a pretty good movie, though. It, it is good. I mean, it's definitely a great Robin Williams vehicle. And that brings us, I got two more for you. One is the Best Picture winner of the year, which was The Last Emperor, directed by Bernardo Bertolucci. And this is a historical drama with John Lone, and he's playing the Chinese emperor. And yes, I did just have to Google this. He's playing Pu Yi, the last emperor of China. And this is a very epic scale movie. Peter O'Toole comes in and out of it. Uh, John Lone was a very magnetic actor from uh, Year of the Dragon. He was also an Iceman. He was in the M. Butterfly, the David Cronenberg one with... Uh, um with what's his name, uh, with Jeremy Irons. And he was, this, wasn't he the villain in The Shadow or one of those, The Phantom or The Shadow or one of the, he's kind of an actor who didn't really get his due. I always thought he was like a really cool guy, but uh, he plays the older version, but for so much of this, you, you're with the young version of this emperor. Well, and I remember as a kid seeing the scope and the scale, and it was definitely the kind of thing where the critics were like, this is it, here's the best movie of the year. It's so epic. It's like Lawrence of Arabia and it's Bertolucci, this great director, and Vittorio Storaro and these sets and the way it's lit and everything. And I think thought it was really good and probably if i could have admitted it a little boring maybe <laughs> like even by bertolucci standards now it doesn't have quite the sleaze factor of 1900 or last tango in paris or even something kind of hokey like stealing beauty it's very much bertolucci kind of on best behavior except for this one weird opium lesbian scene with joan chen and another girl sucking each other's toes or something which was extremely uncomfortable for me to watch with my family or however i saw it and it i saw it in a theater and i it was i was boosted up by all the reviews to think this was you know when you're a kid you just don't question it at least I didn't. If Siskel Niebuhr said this is four stars, this is a masterpiece, it wins Best Picture, it probably came to Pittsburgh after it had been nominated for a slew of awards with all this hype. You know, who was I to say the critics are wrong? I thought, oh, that is really great. And at the time, I would have given it, I believe I reviewed it in my junior high newspaper where I'd write these little corny capsule reviews. And I'm sure I whipped out the big four stars and gave my little authoritative blurb where I was the I was the world's biggest authority on Emperor Pu Yi in 1987, 1988 and 
Today, I would probably not watch this movie with a gun to my head. I hate to say it. So nothing against it. I remember it being really good. That lesbian toe thing really is very memorable. That's kind of like, I never see anyone mention that. I guess most people didn't think much of it. But being a, uh, you know, a teenager, I was like, what the fuck is that about? <laughs> like, I was sort of, that really stuck with me. Um, and it's, it's really good. And it's beautiful looking. And it's long. It has this epic scope. And it's not at all what I would ever want to rewatch again. What I do rewatch, and ultimately my favorite movie that year, and forevermore, is Wall Street, the Oliver Stone movie. Probably my most seen movie of 1987, if that's possible, even against some of these other heavy hitters. I Something about this movie, when I was a teenager, and I talked a little bit very early on, and I saved one review, too, to go in tandem with this, which was Secret of My Success with Michael J. Fox, which came out at the early part of the year. And those two movies kind of bookend this year, this year of 1987, this year in the height of the Reagan era. This is the year of that uh, Wall Street, that uh, financial collapse in 80, the stock market crash. And this idea of these young actors, these cool actors who young people liked, and they were playing these white collar roles in Secret of My Success. Michael J. Fox is this rube from Kansas who's got an uncle in the big city. And he's going off to big, bad New York to stake his claim in the world. And he's going to become some financial raider, weasel asshole. And he does this duplicitous thing where he's pretending to be somebody he's not to get in on the ground floor with the real heavy hitters. And he's just a shark and he's kind of an asshole. And this is what movies were then. The next year you have Cocktail with Tom Cruise, which is, you know, he's a bartender, but he's also trying to get, you know, he's trying to get as rich as possible, bilk people out of their money. And Wall Street is the epitome of this. This is so much into the zeitgeist of that era. You know, and Oliver Stone is, you know, his father was a stockbroker. He's sort of critical about it, but it's a movie very much with the old Scarface, Boogie Nights, Goodfellas question of like, is this a Wolf of Wall Street thing where you're like, yeah, but you're kind of getting off on the ride, you know, you know, it's kind of depicted that this is evil and greedy and, and, um, you know, these are not good people, but when you're along for the ride, it's so fun and so aspirational, especially if you're like an empty headed kid when these movies came out at 14 or 15 and you see... I would see these actors like Cruz or Charlie Sheen or Michael J. Fox or not that I'm any, when I was a kid, I wasn't a bad looking kid. I was obviously a lot skinnier. I kind of saw them as looking like me. I would try to style my hair like they had it. And I would look up to them. They were aspirational. And there are these movies where they're becoming rich and getting the girl and get scoring with the babes. And they're going to, you know, bilk some company and, you know, whatever they're going to do. I was all on board. It seemed exciting. I didn't know a thing about stockbroking, but Wall Street made it look like the most exciting thing ever going to work work you got your wacky buddy john c mcginley with his you know uh plastic yankees helmet we got nicks and chicks and you got gordon gecko who's the epitome of the scarface question of like are you supposed to love this guy as much as you do with the greed is good the speech that everybody remembers this is of course oliver stone this is the height of his blowhard incendiary era every every year and from about 86 to about 96 he had a movie that was very uh like a firebrand blowhard statement about our american way of life or our recent american American past. This movie, there's a little bit of a platoon um, structure to it in terms of Charlie Sheen. He's Bud Fox. He's this uh, young broker at Jackson Steinem or something like that. And uh, he wants to get an in with Gordon Gecko, who's the top dog in town is this greedy corporate asshole who, you know, destroys companies and sells them off. And, and, um, he kind of gets an in with him by selling a little bit of a soul because his father is Martin Sheen, who's the salt of the earth guy who works as a machinist at an air, at a, uh, an airplane company, airline. And, um, 
Charlie Sheen goes to Gordon Gecko with his inside info, and Gecko, you know, he finally gets in to see him. He's so excited. Michael Douglas is such a ham immediately. He's like, this is the kid. He calls me 59 days in a row. There ought to be a picture of you in the dictionary under persistence, kid. And he's got his buddy Ollie, played by whoever, Zero Mostel's son, whoever that is. And, um... Charlie Bud Fox, Charlie Sheen tells him about some inside info about a favorable ruling at the airline and that makes Gecko a fortune and then Bud Fox becomes his, you know, uh, goes under his wings basically and gets corrupted and there's this very ridiculously on the nose Oliver Stone throwaway moment where uh, Bud Fox, Charlie Sheen is out on his balcony. He's got this beautiful apartment and it's, you know, it's way above his means, but he, uh, Gecko is making him a fortune. He's got him a girlfriend played by Daryl Hannah and he's making, he's making handmade sushi at home. He's, you know, and Martin Sheen, you know, he's smoking cigs. He doesn't know what to make of his kid becoming this high roller. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, trading inside information he's kind of of a weasel he's gonna bankrupt he doesn't know this but gecko of course is gonna fuck over martin sheen's airline and there's a part where he's out on this balcony looking over beautiful manhattan and charlie sheen turns to the camera and he goes who am i <laughs> i remember he was on letterman once charlie sheen and dave was like what's it like being directed by oliver stone he's like uh you know it's, it's kind of hard to work for because he told me my acting he was like his acting isn't so great in some parts and uh stone told uh charlie sheen that that was like a bad mark camel moment and sheen was like well star wars is my favorite movie it must be good um and it's you know watching it now i watch some of it today and i still get into it it's you know it's definitely the ultimate bro kind of movie i'm sure it's like an espn dad watch i mean i used to watch it with my dad all the time when i was a teenager and i love all the phony names and at the anacott steel blue star airlines teldar paper uh terrence stamp is sir larry wildman with the i could dump the stock just to burn your ass <laughs> it's a bonanza of overacting awesome cast hal holbrook comes in to give this uh, James Karen and Hal Holbrook and there's a part where I think it's Holbrook or is it Karen I think it's Holbrook pulls Charlie Sheen aside to give him a little parable about the man looking down into the abyss it's so on the nose it's so Oliver Stone and of course you got the talking head song that this must be the place that sends you out in such a good mood um, the part where uh, they have the elevator fight between father and son is such good acting it's like I think that's Charlie Sheen's best scene ever and Martin Sheen breaks the fucking sound barrier with that uh, never judge a man by the size of his wallet <laughs> and he flips out on him and uh sheen's like you're a man you're a fucking man and he chases him out the street and like the passers-by you get the feeling they're not even extras they're just people on the street that were taken aback by charlie sheen's ferocious overacting in that part it's i don't know it's my it's my favorite movie of 87 it's my favorite movie of the year um it's one of my favorite movies of all time and uh, more than anything, I'm wrapping it up with that because I feel like that's a movie that captures what 1987 was all about, where I was as a young man, what I aspired to, what was going on in the culture, what was going on with politics. And it for me, it didn't get any better than Wall Street. Uh, maybe someday I'll do a Wall Street Money Never Sleeps podcast, where which was the, definitely the kinder, gentler Oliver Stone. In addition to him just going off doing his wingnut politics and palling around with Castro and everything. I, it's there's something interesting to be said about later era Oliver Stone where he kind of mellowed out and started giving his characters a little bit of a of a break. Some of his writing historically was always very overripe and on the nose and uh, kind of rubbing your face in this over the top sensibility in certain movies, which I loved. Again, I was like a young edgelord. That was perfect for me. But you get to movies like Money Never Sleeps and even Savages and... Um, those movies could still be very over the top and very Oliver Stone, but it seems like 
he mellowed into a kinder, gentler, more thoughtful, uh, somewhat more boring <laughs> director around that time. But he would kind of give his characters a little grace notes at the end that weren't quite as stentorian as the uh, as the stern wrath of Oliver Stone judgment that you got in the 80s and early 90s movies. Anyway, this is not a podcast about Oliver Stone. It was about the great year of 1987. Uh, this went on forever. I hope you had some fun listening to it. Um, I tried to kind of focus on the movies that maybe you don't remember. You know, we all remember the big ones, but uh, hopefully there were some gems in there that you can check out or uh, thank me for telling you to never check them out. And uh, you can go enjoy Over the Top. That would be my biggest recommendation in there. Anyway, that was 1987. It was fun to do. And uh, thanks a lot for listening. Sorry for uh, it being very long. If you stuck in there, I appreciate it very much. And uh, hey, thanks a lot. Hey, have a good day. Okay, bye.